Welcome to Takeaways, Life Lessons Learned. I'm your host, Hayam Mizrahi. Join me as I explore my takeaways from the people who have influenced me the most. Let's get started. Jim Stewart. At don't, long last. Don't start with that look on your face. No? Though. All right. No. I'll put my serious <laughs> intro look on. Here we All go. Right. Jim Stewart is currently a partner at Matter Real Estate Group. You officially became an entrepreneur in 1994. Feel free to fact check any of this because it came off mm. the internet. I understand you've been involved in five major ventures. They include commercial real estate brokerage, project management, development, and home appliances. And if we want to go all the way back, we can add hospitality to the list. Hospitality. I understand your first business was running a Kool-Aid stand in your neighborhood Indeed. at the ripe age of eight. And if my memory serves me, I'd say about eight. Yes. Yeah. Well constructed. Took a loan from my father. Bought my own supplies. Oh, serious. Hired like serious. kids. Yeah, did the whole thing. Nice. Yeah. I was not very bright back then. Well, that'd be hospitality. I put that in I hospitality. So. Okay. I think it was entrepreneurial. I was figuring if I could sell lemonade to passerbys in a car and to this day though i will say i, I honor kids that are out doing it mm-hmm. and i always stop because <laughs> uh, i feel like i was that guy uh, that kid you give him a 20 i imagine i'm generous so you graduated from unlv yes so did i yeah yeah your Go degree reps. is in business administration and management comma general that's what it says is that maybe i just wasn't smart enough to get a specific discipline um so general sounds pretty good yeah I guess what well rounded. I have no idea what mine that means. was in marketing. Okay. I had the same yeah. thing, comma marketing. Okay. So on a personal level, you're a family man, a marathoner, an iron man, a global adventure seeker. We were talking earlier, your next trip is to Thailand and Bali. You're into fishing, cycling, skiing, mm. horses. That's because of your daughters, or do you get on the horse too? I will, but not they won't let me on their horse. I actually, you know, I really feel like a man about the world, as you describe it. It, it sounds better coming from you. Yeah, there's more. Okay. So You're right, a wino, big into wine. Uh, I, I've, well, I like to drink wine, but I you know, wouldn't consider myself an expert at anything. All right. Are you an expert in corn dogs and soft serve ice cream? Well, now, we're, now we've hit my swim lane right Here we there. go. Yeah, yeah. Now, now I have some real value to add. Corn dogs. <laughs> uh, you, you know, it um, it just became folklore with my family, and I think Dan Doherty might actually have been responsible. And you know, he was, uh, you know, Dan's very passionate about food, and so uh, on one of my trips at Disneyland with the kids and his kids, and he made this, you know, unbelievable, you know, you know, passionate plea that we must stop at the end of Main Street to get their corn dogs, and somehow my young kids at that time, um, you know, never let it go, and so I just run with it and. So yeah, uh, corn dogs. Wherever we go around the world, I try and find corn dogs, and and uh, now everyone wants me to have soft serve, and it's a problem. But I've heard you once in like a group setting give a technical definition or explanation of what makes good soft serve. Yeah. Am I remembering that right? Or I no? don't think so. No, no. So what's but the soft serve passion? It's, it's same again, as it, same as the corn dog. Yeah. It, it originally snowed I, this well, whole time. Look, we have to you know, make ourselves interesting. Why, why not corn dogs and soft serve? Yeah. All right, and you know it, it just it, you you find it everywhere. So it makes it, it particularly soft serve. And we go to Europe or other countries, and 
as soon as you see some indication of soft serve, my kids are, dad, let's go. That's your thing. Well, it's actually kind of their thing, but it became my thing. I see. It's their thing that it's your thing, so they make it, it a thing. I don't know. It's kids. It's kids. They're, they're adults now, so, but they still push. All right. Well, those were my words. Okay. So over to you. Tell us in your own words, who are you and what do you do? Well, uh, you, you know, work in progress. <laughs> I, you know, and uh, you know, here, here's what I can say, Haim. Let me, as we, as we kind of move into this, let me, let me, let me turn the script for a moment and just say, you know, why am I even here? Uh, you know, like many others, I have plenty of things to do, but let me say, I, I have such admiration and respect for what you're doing with this podcast and your work and your leadership in the community, and just getting out there and um, trying to make your own impact, whatever that might mean for you. And I think in many ways we're very similar in that sense that. I'm constantly looking for, you know, other places where I can make a contribution. That wasn't the younger version of me. That's the more um, grade version of me. Uh, so I really I admire everything you're doing, and and that's why I'm here is to pay respect for your work, not mine. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. You're welcome, and you deserve it. Cool. Yeah. Now can we talk about you? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, so professionally, how would you describe what you do? Curious. So work in progress, curious. I'm starting to get the yeah, picture. Yeah, you know, I, um, you know, particularly at, at this chapter. So I think it's really, you know, it's it's situational to where I am in my life. Um, you know, the young version of me, I would say, probably like many others, uh, you know, I was in pursuit of you know, material gain. I wanted, you know, the car, the things, uh, the reputation, the credibility, the respect, the admiration. You know, a lot of empty pursuits, you know, but you have to travel that path to understand that those very things that I think we've been conditioned to believe create fulfillment and an enriched life. Once you achieve some things, you can really have a context to realize it's not what it's held out to be. Hmm. So, you know, younger self, I, you know, and, and when I was partnered with Mike Mixer, we were, uh, we were driven and we were driven to create, you know, success, which we measure by wealth through, professional achievements, what have you. Um, my middle, okay, let's, call, let's put it into three chapters. My middle chapter, uh, after I sold so everything. first chapter is material pursuits. Yeah, you know, young, enthusiastic, uh, naive would be a, 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 you know, a good descriptor, but ambitious. And, and um, you know, I, I think if, if anything, I, I certainly was willing to put in the, the time and the energy to find you know, my place. And uh, I was very fortunate in this town to be mentored or at least in the presence of some, you know, really inspired contributors to this community, civic leaders, developers, um, you know, people that made such a great impact on my life. And I, and I felt I was given a tutorial and a privilege in Las Vegas to be accepted. You know, coming from the Bay Area in San Francisco, I, you know, often joked I'd be carrying someone's bag in my 30s. And out here, I'm sitting in boardrooms with, you know, the people that were making decisions about the direction of this city and this state in some cases. And uh, I never lost sight that that was, that was a real privilege and a gift. So that, you know, as that chapter kind of went through, um, and then, you know, kind of through the Centra days, then my children started growing up. And, and anyone who knows anything about me knows the importance of my family, um, the gift of being present in the Three amazing, you know, young women, you know, ladies now, and being part of their life, and taking them to school, and being a dad, 
um, having a you know great relationship and a strong relationship with my wife now of 30 years and um, being on that journey as parents and being able to explore the world with our girls. I mean, that was my singular focus. Um, and same as the privilege of being mentored by some you know great men and, and women uh, in the case of the privilege of being part of my daughter's lives. Uh, that is something, I mean, I feel like I'm complete. I'm done. So this next chapter, the third chapter, is um, more for me, if I'm to kind of be forced to think about it. And by me, just make sure that the work I'm doing gives me the proper opportunities to contribute in ways that perhaps I wouldn't have done. When, I, when you remove the goal of how do I provide for my family, how do I create you know, wealth, how do I on and on, whatever in, you know, individual pursuits are, uh, for me those were, were consistent, I, I feel like I have no pressure now. And I'm able to, I kind of, <laughs> when I was driving over here, I was listening to classic rock because I'm older, so that's actually current rock still to me. But and I was, you know, I kind of thought that, you know, in some ways, I, I feel like that, you know, that old vinyl album that you know maybe has been tucked away for too long, and you you pull it out and dust it off, and you think, you know, there's still probably a couple good songs in here that I haven't heard in a while, and that's metaphorically kind of how I feel like now. I there's, I think I have a couple good things left to 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 do. We'll see. All right. Um, there's a lot there that we're gonna touch on and yeah. tease out and, and understand a little more of before we move in that direction. You were born in California, I understand it. I was. And how did you make it to Las Vegas? So uh, it's, a, it's a rather uh, circuitous route. So <clears throat> my father literally uh, was a rocket scientist, probably the <laughs> greatest inspiration in my life. Um, and I think a lot of the methodologies and the practicality of how I view the world, how I you know, my curiosity is one thing, but then to be methodical in how you question and, and pull it apart and find answers where otherwise it looks like it's confusing uh, or abstract, that came from a scientific approach, you know, listening to my father. Uh, and then my mother, uh, she was also uh, you know, a skilled nurse, went to Stanford, had a father at Annapolis and went to UC Berkeley for aeronautical engineering. So there was big pressure. And I, I will and say, man, did you live up to it? With yeah, your, no, you not at all. Degree. Look, it's, uh, yeah, <laughs> well, there you are. So, I, I, look, I, you know, I, I was not a great son. I, I will say, I, I you know, look, I was a great son to my parents. I was respectful of people, but you know, through high school, I got bored very quickly. And uh, you know, I, there was certainly times when I wasn't sure, you know, if I'd end up in prison or end up in a boardroom. Just because Seriously? of behavior, yeah, yeah. Look, uh, I, I think you're part of what I want to be able to do is demystify. I mean, I, I think it's not fair to a young generation that you know, only gets to see the parts of us that we allow them to see. And so, when they have their own struggles, their own challenges, their own failures, it's very you know easy for them to start believing that they're they're not enough. And you know, I feel almost a responsibility to share my failures and my own vulnerability. I, I have, you know, I did all the dumb things high school kids can do. I barely made it into a university. The fact that UNLV accepted me, so it brought me here. I had a four-year school that mm -hmm. said yes. And I uh, probably had a, a super impressive 2.0 GPA and barely squeaked out a graduation in high school. But um, there was did you never... you have to take SATs or ACTs back then or no? We did, but it was it was so much different, uh, at least for me, my my. my family and my parents didn't 
really drive the study and all the work that you needed to really prepare. Uh, it was like, oh, well, you, you're taking your SAT this weekend. Yeah, let us know how it goes. Mm-hmm. And that's about as much guidance as I had. And um, so if I, I had no idea how I, well I did or poorly I did, but I did take it. And you mentioned uh, your wife, Candice, yes. your three daughters. Right. Tell us about them. So uh, Candace, I, even though I like to joke that you know she was in hot pursuit of me, the, the reality is far, far different, of course. But uh, we met at UNLV. She was the president of her sorority. I was the president of my fraternity, Sigma Chi. All right. And um, you know, she, you know, I immediately was taken back by her. She from North Carolina, so had that you know wonderful Southern charm, you know, cool little accent, and just you know, I was smitten. But I course put my shoulder back and <laughs> played the macho dude and, uh you know and and uh we we just kind of hit it off and 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 uh, 30 years later so in april we you know celebrated our 30th anniversary and i will say uh she has been the the strength of character that i need when my strength of character isn't available and somehow we've really um just managed to grow stronger over the years and yeah, okay. I, you know, look, I wish we weren't starting my family. It's a, it's a, it's an emotional part of, of you know who I became, and I owe so many people so much for tolerating. You know, when I had my own failures, you know, my own fears. How about your daughters? Yeah, so you're just gonna keep you know punching me in the gut. Yeah, we'll uh, move on after this. Yeah, and ask about uh, your brother uh, next. Uh, so that that so, should be fun. Um, so <laughs> I. Uh, 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 it's it's the, the the single greatest well triple gift uh, of of my life and I think uh, what really served them well and served me well is I was completely present in their lives as they were growing up I was given a gift to kind of exit the business in 2007 and spent the next you know decade plus really being a part of their lives they were all very very serious equestrians and we traveled all over and um, the three girls were inseparable as best friends. I, most people find this hard to uh, uh, believe, but I will say it f- succinctly. I have never heard either one of my daughters raise their voice to anybody, including one another. And I think that to me is, a, is kind of a test of who they are. They're mm. confident. They're smart. They are proud. They are uh, determined. They have values and a view of the world that I learned from uh, to this day. So I think the, the the biggest compliment I can give to who they became is uh, our roles have reversed. And now I'm the student, and I learn from them, and their views of tolerance and inclusion and acceptance of others and um, so many things that, that weren't my strengths that they remind me every day of what we could all be doing to be better people. And it's a, a, a joy. It's I have... Savannah, my oldest daughter, still lives in San Diego, so uh, I, I don't have to hunt her down. <laughs> my middle daughter is recently engaged and lives in London. Congratulations. So, yeah, thank you. I, I always find it odd that we congratulate the parents. Like, I had nothing to do with it other than <laughs> you know, saying, go, go you know, good for you. Um, but she's engaged to you know super, super bright, um, you know, Oxford-educated uh, barrister. And I uh, I have to talk about corn dogs and soft surf with him because if he moves into his – career path I, I get lost very quickly um, so she'll be married out there and then my youngest daughter just graduated from school in LA as well and now she's pursuing an acting career up in LA and 
wants to be in that industry. She's had her first films, short films, accepted into a bunch of big music or film festivals and just returned from Cannes in uh, France to you know, attend the film festival out in South France. And she's 21. And I, I really, awesome. I, I don't understand. I, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm lost at how ambitious and organized, not only my daughters, but their friends and others that I get to see. When I was 21, I don't know how it was for you, but you know, the most important thing to me was, was a little different. Yeah. How, 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 you know, uh, do, do I have $5 to get to the, all, you know, all you can drink at the sports pub? Yeah. You know, it was these, these kids today are, we had Tom and Jerry's across from you and off of you. Oh yeah. Okay. I remember Tom and Jerry's. I had, uh, well, we it was like dollar it. pitcher night. That was the big thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, we had rum runner for dollar shots. <laughs> <and> that was, <laughs> exactly. So yeah. same, same. I only bring up your brother cause he's in the industry. Yeah. He's a you broker should. He's here. A is that, is he your only sibling? Uh, I have two sisters that live up in Reno and my brother, of course, here. Cool. So your brother's a land broker here. And he is. He he's is. He's going to show and up later in our story. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll save some commentary. You'll, you'll fact check again. Okay. All right. So this show is called Takeaways and it's about yep. uh, people who I've learned from, from and who have influenced me. So I ask everybody, mm-hmm. what has been the single most influential thing or event in your life that has defined or shaped you the most? Single. One event, I mean that that really you know kind of narrows things down pretty quickly. Um, I, I I don't think I could you know really bring it that succinctly to a a, a moment in time. But uh, if I'm to, if if you'll give me permission to, to perhaps give two, sure. So reflecting back on you know my dereliction as a you know young teenage you know boy running around in California. Um, you know, I, I'm sure I had screwed up doing something and I was waiting for the big moment when my father, you know, kind of came down on me, you know, verbally, my, you know, not, nothing more than that, but he would, you know, when I failed as a son or as a kid, uh, you know, you knew that uncomfortable conversation eventually was coming and I was on a long road trip with my dad and I think we were heading up to our place in Tahoe and I kept expecting, it was just awkward silence for hours in the car together and. My father was always a man of few words, but uh, you know, when the words came, they were well thought out and and purposeful. And but he, he had nothing to say. And eventually, I kind of said, "Look, Dad, I, can we just kind of end this? I know, you know, if I've broke your trust once again. Um, I want to just say what you have to say." And as sincerely and as genuinely as he could, he said, "I have nothing left to say." And I thought this was going to go in a horrible place, but he said, "Look, at your." You know, at that time I was probably 16, 17, you know, who knows, 18, 30. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he said, uh, your mom and I have done our work. Mm-hmm. You know what is right and what is wrong. You know the uh, result from making poor decisions. It's not up to me to tell you that anymore. It's up to you to decide who you're going to be. What are you going to be remembered by? And how do you want the world to see you? And if you continue making these type of decisions, you know what the outcome will be. And you deserve to be harshly judged. If you make decisions that you know are correct and true and sometimes hard, um, you'll be on a different path. But that's no longer our role. And it was a weight actually dropped on me to um, kind of let me know I, I'm, I'm no longer under the care of my father. It's, it's up to me. And so it kind of shook me a bit and, and helped kind of reframe. I think from a just a, a – so that was the first time I truly started to, to accept and, and take responsibility for who I was and my own actions – as a as a father, I would find, you know, and and I certainly don't want to isolate any one of my daughters, but uh, my middle daughter had heart surgery at twenty months old. Wow! And um, 
you know, when you're when you as a parent are given that type of information, um, and you know, you're called into a room and you're speaking to a grief counselor, um, that's going to help prepare you for remote but possible outcomes. And you're talking about a you know a, your little angel. Um, it snapped my universe. If you, if you ever want to get focused on what matters, having a child in a life-threatening situation uh, does it. And it actually, in, in, in retrospect, and from that moment on, after you know, we you know, got her you know, home and she became healthy and um, a thriving young you know, 21-month-old, uh, it then served as my reminder every day. She had a you know, large scar you know, growing up and so anytime we'd be at a beach or a pool or anywhere else, it would be a reminder to me that life is temporary and fleeting and delicate. And to not put the energy into the things that I truly am going to care about. Um, now, it, was to, like, it, it, it served as the most profound lesson and reminder of what my role is. And my role is to be a father and to be a husband and uh, to be there for my children, and with a great reminder that tomorrow is promised to no one, and that's uh, I think we we could all benefit from learning that you know life is not this you know fifty year seventy year eighty year ninety year journey we are guaranteed, and seeing my daughter in that situation reminded me to cherish every single moment I have with my girls um, throughout their their you know time with me. What a contrast between the two about yeah. It's your responsibility to live the kind of life you want to live and then the reminder yeah. that nothing's guaranteed. That's right. And it serves me to this day. Uh, and, and I see the, 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 the cube that uh, you know, we gave out. So that actually came from a kind of script I wrote. And uh, we had these 23 elements of joy. We narrowed it down to fit on, that rock, you know, on this little rock that's on your desk. Mm-hmm. But uh, th- those were kind of the life moments that, that I started to realize. And it's, the, my view is not unique, by the way, Haim. I just had the experience to you know, amplify the emotion that's attached to it and then sear it into my psyche of what it means. But if you start spending any time uh, looking at end-of-life scenarios for people and what they think about, what they talk about, what they reflect about, to me that is where we should all take pause and give great you know, relevance to those statements because you have people who are giving you the playbook. They're at their mm-hmm. end of life. They have the, the journey that we're all on, they have a view to say, here's what I wish I spent more time thinking about. And they're telling us, mm-hmm. it's here. And yet you know, we ignore that and get back into the daily grind and somehow you know, the, the toxicity of our politics, the, you know, our anger with someone driving a car that, you know, gosh, they cut us off and I'm, I'm really, you know, have, have taken the time to, to to control and learn on how I respond to, you know, those moments and make sure that I'm being true and uh, and keeping small things small. One of the statements on here is live your life now. Yeah. So you wrote you wrote all of these? Yes. Now, let's be clear. I, I, I mean, by right, <laughs> I, I found inspiration. Yeah. Some things I reframed, but, but you know, mm-hmm. I, I don't deserve any of the credit for that as much as, you know, organizing all these other, you know, stories I read and mm-hmm. people that gave commentary. And it's endless. I mean, if you just look through kind of end in life, you know, guidance on what people. What, what, so you, did you actually do work talking to people at the end of life and yeah, hearing yeah. what they say? Yep. Why? Yeah, right. Talk about that. <laughs> what uh, brought you to that? I'm curious. 
look, it's there's there's nothing um, there's nothing unique about that. I mean, if I if you ask him, but like if where can we get some great life lessons and how would we kind of separate the the essential few from the trivial many in this journey we're all on? The obvious people to speak to are the people who've been on the journey. They're the educators. So it's. When you start reaching your fifties and your kids leave and all these other things you know evolve, you start to have uh, your own quest. And my, mm-hmm. I'm on that quest still, and I'll, I hope I'm on that quest for the rest of my life. And I want to extract all I can out of this part of my life: the people I surround myself with, the uh, type of work I do, the moments I create, uh, the presence of of, of being with uh, people I love. I, I don't want to have regrets, and I think that's really what drives a lot of how I think and how I how I view the world is to, you know, I, I think one of the great wastes of a life would be to sit there at you know at eighty five, ninety years old, and look back and say, "Damn, there's a lot of things I said I would do. There's a lot of things I should have done. There's a lot of things I knew to do, and I chose not to." And I, I just don't want to be in that spot. I want to be able to look back uh, with a sense of contentment and fulfillment. I think we all do. And the, the, I have the, a life well lived. I, I was true to my values. I was, you know, made mistakes, but I owned them. Um, I never hid. When things got tough, you know, I like to believe I showed up. I would like to believe I was the husband my wife dreamed of, the father my girls had hoped for. I mean, who wouldn't want to? be able to say that. I think a lot of people would want to be able to say that. And how many people actually do that? And mm. why is there such a gap between the two? Um, well, I, I, I don't have reference into how others, you know, I don't have the what are you data. doing here? Do you have- <laughs> <laughs> well, I know if you need I'm a statistical average, yeah. I have it. But, you know, but I, I've also learned, you know, I am for Everyone's on their own journey, and it's not, it's not my yeah. – uh, I have no agency over how others want to live their life. I can only speak to the things that I find to be important, I, the things that keep me motivated, and the things that uh, inspire me. Sometimes it's as simple as slowing down to look at an interesting piece of architecture. Other times it's having my hair blown back in some extreme scary situation that scares the – you know. You know, me to the core uh, to remind me, like, wow, I mean, it's life is a, is a range of emotions, and I and I want to be, I want to take it all in. I, I I have nothing left to to hide. I have no uh, agenda on where I need to go next. My success is in my girls. They've all out, you know made it out of school. They're all on their own life journey now, so they can they could afford to not have me in their life. Right. So my job as a father has more or less concluded. And so what's my next job? I get to kind of think about yeah. the relationship with my wife and the relationship with self. I'm sure they would disagree with that statement slightly, mm-hmm. but I get, I get what you're saying. Uh, I want to go into um, the arc of your career. And, the, and I mentioned in your intro the five major ventures that you had before, though. Mm-hmm. You mentioned when you were talking earlier about mentors that you had. Are there one or two that come to mind that you can mention, I can ask you about? So I, I think there's more been just snippets that uh, that I've extracted from a lot of people. Um, you know, Erwin Molaski was was someone that you know. And I know you, you, you I assume Erwin you know, somehow crossed paths with you. A name everyone knows. Yeah. I've actually never met him. Okay, yeah. but uh, he's 
Godfather of Las Vegas real yeah. estate, essentially. And, and look, you know, Irwin, uh, you know, probably was like, you know, Jim Stewart, who? So I, I'm, I'm also cognizant of that. But there was a, there was a moment in time, and uh, just because this is, you, know, you have a lot of real estate listeners, I was uh, pitching uh, Mike Mixer and I to take over the Molaski families, you know, of businesses, and uh, you know, they wanted to consolidate some of their leasing and other interests into, yeah, you know, this and that. So for for us as a young firm, is a very big opportunity for us to to you know go pitch. Irwin personally, and it was mostly driven by, you know, Alan and, and uh, the sons. But Irwin was going to be the audience because he was thinking about these things, and we had spent you know <laughs> weeks just preparing. And you know, I'm going to step in a room with the legend of Las Vegas and and try and convince him that he should you know make a bet on you know, this young startup called Stuart Mixer and entrust uh, us with his life's work. No small you know ask, right? And uh, I came in with my whole team. We were buttoned up. We were polished. We were practiced. We were rehearsed. We were ready. I had volumes of books and things. And you know, I knew his properties across the, you know, his entire portfolio very, very well. And uh, so I sit all this stuff down, and we we're ready to go. And this room's full of people. We're in his rather eclectic office. And I start my spiel. You know, I think it all played out in my head. And Within about two or three minutes, I could see his you know, attention was wandering off like out the window, and my heart rate's accelerating. I think, oh, this is just not going to go well. And Erwin just put his, slapped his hand on his desk and said, can someone tell me how long we're, you know, we have here together? And one of the, you know, it might have been Alan or somebody, had been, oh, we're, we, this is going to go for an hour. He goes, you're presenting for an hour. Is that right, Jim? I said, well, yes. He goes, I'll tell you what. Go to the last five minutes. <laughs> Tell me what that is, and if I'm still interested, we'll keep talking. <laughs> and it really just you know set me back, and and I actually you know we had a great answer for that, and I was able to think on my feet, and and I you know came up and said, well, my recommendation is we rebrand your entire company, and that stopped him in his tracks. Like I thought we were talking about real estate, and so we went into this whole other conversation, but it, it was a it, it was a you know, one of those great business lessons to get to the point. And you know, we we all I think out of maybe our own insecurity or we want to you know, pontificate to show how smart we think we are when in fact we are not. And you know, we have this innate desire to, to speak and talk and like me and use your mm-hmm. hands and want to try and engage people and um, you know, spew a lot of nonsense. And everyone said, don't tell me that. Tell me what's important, what's relevant, and then we'll talk. Mm-hmm. And so get to the point, big lesson. Uh, another you know, great mentor business-wise was Terry Wright. So uh, you know Terry has since you know kind of sold his company, but back in the day, a Nevada title, and we were a young, growing company, and he hosted this great luncheon for us, and uh, at his office, all of my work was going exclusively to another title agency and to for our whole firm, and he brought in Spago and does this unbelievable you know spread inside their office. They have all their leadership and China and Spago. I mean, this is uh, this is otherworldly for for a young you know guy like me in the in the business. And uh, at the end, he never made an ask. And, I, and he kind of concluded, like, look, guys, we're, I'm not here to ask for your business. I want you to know that. I just wanted you to know our team and get to know one another, start developing a relationship. And when the time is right, we hope we're considered. But other than that, you know, we really appreciate you being with us tonight. And that was another amazing kind of lesson around business that we – you don't need to force it. You know, you really – if you just are authentic and true and you're patient and wait – then the right answer will present itself, and the right partnerships will present themselves. But up until that point, I was, you know, the eager. If I just talk loud enough and sell and, mm-hmm. and promote and excite, then business happens. And uh, Terry taught me that that's not the case. And then lastly, I'm going to add, uh, you know, one more, who's Jim Murren. 
uh, you know, I had the pleasure of meeting Jim through some mutual acquaintances, and uh, at that time, I found it incredibly humbling that the CEO of the largest, you know, business in our state, uh, and you know, I think at the time he had sixty thousand employees or some, you know, un- you know, a remarkable number of people he was responsible to, somehow would carve out time and spend it with me, and I was able to watch uh, Jim and his wife Heather kind of take over the helm of. Of MGM under you know and and then ultimately you know Mirage and and Steve's properties, uh, and do so with a level of elegance and uh, humility that was a, you know a reminder that just because you hold the seat doesn't give you privilege to uh, bring arrogance and entitlement into that conversation. And then I think as well to watch what they did uh, you know from a civic side and the contributions they made with Nevada Cancer and. Uh, the research that drew, you know, the rock the cure, and they were, you know, they were genuinely um, f- contributors and focused on making a difference in this town and in ways that I, I don't think he gets enough credit for. You know, City Center became a legacy, but City Center, you know, and good and bad, right? So City Center mm-hmm. had you know, certainly walked into the teeth of an economic storm, but that was on, you know, while it was on his watch, it was not his fault. It was your things that are all beyond our control, but. You know, Jim always maintained a level of, of grace uh, under those kind of pressures that I, I found to be remarkable. A um, couple things. Was Mike Forche there that day? Do you know Mike? Probably, yeah. You know, um, I, I, you know we, we, we knew each other more in passing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I may have played a round of golf, which would have made it you know, forgettable for him because uh, you know, he and Terry were, were pretty serious about this stuff. But yeah, I, of course, remember Mike. He's who I recorded with last time. It's not out yet, but that was oh, a fascinating, okay. fascinating yeah. conversation. Yeah. Uh, when you talked about Jim, you you said the word grace. It, mm. it feels like to me that grace is a big word for you. You use it a lot. Is that I do? Yeah. Oh. Accurate mm. or no? Well, um, I, I I think it's a it's a it's a tremendously admirable quality for anyone to express, especially as we move up kind of through industry and, you know, perhaps it's, you know, you get perceived as having some role or some position that deserves undue admiration or accolades. Uh, and some people take it. And and um, the people I've admired are, are actually more kind and Humble and approachable and compassionate, empathetic—you know—the kind of qualities that that I, I hope to express for myself, and maybe that's why I attach to it. But I've found that the people that I truly that sear in my memory and I can't forget and and think about their words are people who acted you know, and behaved in that way, uh, men and women alike. Just uh, a level of humility and self-awareness uh, that seems out of place with their station in life or station in industry. Um, that I think takes work. Yeah. Speaking about work. Mm. So you started yeah. a little company called Stuart mixer that then became uh, part of a national brokerage network called Collier's parish that went on after to win the NAOP Spotlight Award of Brokerage of the Year for mm. like 12 years consecutively <laughs> or something no. like that. Yep. Okay. But that's uh, kind of going back to, I wanna, I'm curious to ask you about your, the ventures that you've, you've been in. Uh, Stuart Mixer, was that your first that you stepped out on your own to, 
start mean, beyond the lemonade stand beyond the lemonade uh, yeah. stand that was I, I think that practice was, round yeah, yeah. It, it would be the first time that i was serious I mean, okay. we, we had done uh, the self uh for, you know, again part of my job here is to demystify folklore mm-hmm. so i will uh, <laughs> so uh, mike and i uh you know, we fell into real estate by buying a house together as fraternity brothers. That's how this whole little journey, you know, started. But you know, during b- between when we actually went into real estate and when we had a home together, we had this other little venture uh, of uh, going out and doing asphalt ceiling for driveways. So don't ask how we found this, but we had a, a roommate who was from Buffalo, New York, <laughs> and he talked about all the summers he would go out and uh, you know go seal driveways for people, and it was you know cheap product and. Uh, you get paid a fair amount of money, and so we <laughs> we jump into this you know, idea, and, you know, and 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 bought supplies and created a brand and whatever that meant at that time for us. Uh, only to to later realize that uh, Las Vegans don't actually have <laughs> asphalt driveways; they're all white concrete. And um, so, look, I, I, it's uh, there. A lot of the things so that in, uh, in today's world, when you have a startup and you need a you have to have Change. a market. You pivot. This is called yeah. a pivot. So you, do you guys pivot from from the asphalt? Well, yeah, we found there wasn't a long, <laughs> there wasn't a future in it. So we we we, we couldn't convince people to yeah. pull out and put in asphalt driveways. But you know the the, the venture into Stewart Mixer um, was, was kind of a combination of things. And and you know, first Mike and I were you know best of friends and you know fraternity brothers and kind of looking at this economy in Las Vegas. You know back in man it was just the late eighties, early nineties. And thinking, you know, we can make money doing this. And um, I, we, I had interviewed with CB and uh, some others at the time, but you know, we really wanted to do land. That was kind of our thing, uh, and nobody else was in that space, so it made it kind of. It was a tweener. Right? Mm-hmm. Residential people didn't, you know, follow that. And commercial, I, I thought, well, it's foundational to how these buildings go up. So at some point, you have to acquire the right piece of real estate and understand why you bought that land, what is its infrastructure, what the entire, on and on and on. And there was no one you know, practicing it. So it became our niche, so to speak. And um, we got pretty good at it, frankly, and, and did a lot of work for a lot of super important people in town because we were the only guys who seemed to understand it. And back then, you you couldn't pull up an app and look at parcels. You went down the county recorder and you ran a microfiche machine and you printed these horrible photographs and we would have a room no bigger than this and the entirety of the walls were, were covered with sections of Las Vegas Valley parcel by parcel and we'd write names and you know, hard work frankly mm-hmm. um, but it, it gave us a path to have our own differentiated uh, value and uh, that allowed us to start seeing developers much earlier in the curve and that allowed us to start soliciting other brokers to come in and say well look well, we could sell the land you could develop it with them you can lease it you could sell it uh, and I think really what happened at the time, it's a little shameful now looking back, but we we were borrowing from our fraternity roots and said, why don't we just, we can't be the smartest guys. We certainly don't have the most resources. So why don't we just be the most fun? And our the first Stuart Mixer office, which was at Citibank Park, and now uh, it was Ruth Chris down below. Mm-hmm. I can't remember what was you know, what's there now, but we built a top patio and put a keg in the wall and we hosted beer parties the first Friday of every month and uh, we just let's just entertain. Let's just be approachable, fun, and create kind of this camaraderie among industry professionals and people like us, and just see if that was enough. And uh, it served as a good lesson. Again, like you know, culture counts, and having you know, good people that can have fun together counts. And to this day, I, I mean, I still do it. I still 
take people on trips and you know, mm-hmm. mile markers in some way, just that reincarnated into how do I get a bunch of people from the industry and go do some you know, adventure and have some fun together. And then from there, was it real centric or Centra? Yeah, so um, real centric. So we Stuart Mixer became Colliers, and uh, as you mentioned, merged with Colliers Parish, and particularly J.R. Parish, who was a we don't have time, you know, on this podcast, but one of the more amazing uh, humans and soul. You know, there's something very pure about how J.R. saw the world that I learned a lot from. So we we uh, you know, did that, but you know, once I found that I was now working for others. I you know really can you know learn that I'm not I'm not an employee. I uh, I don't mean that to be anything redeeming or otherwise. But if someone you know I sat in a boardroom and I had you know, a CFO of now the merged company telling me that you know if I have a credit limit and I need to get pre-approval on expenses and this and that and I I'm not um, I'm not a very tolerant person when it comes to others trying to manage how I spend my my decisions and time. So that that was short business. But uh, you know, also, this is kind of late '90s, so the internet was really this big disruptive thing going on, and I just could not resist the siren call of pursuing technology and under, trying to understand what it would do to impact industries. Mm. And uh, so, yeah, so I jumped in and created a company called Real Centric. And what did it do? So, uh, in, in interesting ways, I was at that time I was hanging around with the guys from LoopNet and CoStar. Those were also mm-hmm. uh, little nascent startups, and, and we'd be on panels together and. Uh, and in fact, uh, his name is now. Who's still at the helm of CoStar? Um, Andrew, something to effect. But uh, in our case, we were, you know, taking. I mean, in fairness, it was very disruptive to the business because we were taking the inventory of product, office space principally, and reorganizing in a way that businesses themselves can look at the availability, understand where they can lease it, had an auto generator for an RFP. Uh, you know, we, we would get enough mass in a market before we launch it so that it was immediately valuable. So if you kind of think about the pipeline I was trying to open, it was to get people that were seeking space, give them the information they need in order to find space, and then help facilitate facilitate a transaction. It's kind of the, a the long transaction of, piece is the in parts also leasing, but didn't you also have construction management? Well, so we, we, we organized a set of professionals that are mm-hmm. we would vet through as you kind of imagine that leasing process. And yeah. now a tenant is you're kind of giving up their valuable time and resources in an industry and a process they're not familiar with. So kind of demystifying that was a big part mm-hmm. of our project. So we would uh, you know, have a professional services team, so we make sure that here's three transactional lawyers to hire. You know that you can interview. Here's five subcontractors that we have kind of vetted through, you know, loosely to you know extremely um, that we would stand behind as being you know professionals you can talk to. So just trying to help streamline and bring some uh, education and process. But what we were really after um, was capturing businesses that were in the middle of transition. So if you think about the companies who ended up actually funding us and being part of it, we were uh, – I had Cisco and Steelcase and Microsoft and uh, Nortel Networks and on and on. And the the you know, great answer for them in our technology was I can give you a v- valuable customer at the exact moment they're making decisions around the product you sell. Mm. So if you just take that and look at a Steelcase, the amount of you – know, wasted effort they have to do to be top of mind mm-hmm. on that one time every seven years you're thinking about moving uh, that's a, that's an extraordinarily inefficient system so we had kind of designed it that you can find space you can build a space or and then outfit the space and the objective being go from i need space to my space is up and operating 
It was, it was a hell of a ride. Too. Fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Ahead of its time. Uh, well, <laughs> uh, another you know humbling lesson that you know, <laughs> the world doesn't move as quickly as it does in my mind. Uh, yeah. they, they they they're a little more thoughtful than. than but you also ran up against the dot com boom. Uh, it was, but I, I think you know the dot com. You know, it's easy to point down to you know, point at the meltdown of two thousand, but the other side of it really was that uh, you know the world wasn't going to change as fast as all the hype was mm-hmm. trying to force change. Um, it, you know, it was a combination of you know, those things. Not simply, we were not a victim. We. We were relying on you know big assumptions that people were ready to adopt these technologies would do so broadly and do so quickly, and the reality was very different. You know, people are cautious and don't like change, yeah. and that's true today, right? It sure is. One mm-hmm. of my mentors, Jeff Finn, whose family started NEI Global, mm-hmm. whose father, Jeff's father, pioneered the concept of corporate services real estate that now CB and JLL and all those folks are are in now. He pioneered it back mm-hmm. in the late seventies. Uh, when they sold NAI, he then got into the technology business and says similar things. One yeah. of his taglines yeah. is, if you want to herd cats, you give them tuna, talking yeah. about getting brokers to adopt technology. Yeah. Usually it's technology is developed in our industry by the managers because they want to manage a process, not for the brokers who, at the end of the day, want to put money in their pocket. Yeah. And right. so his answer to the adoption curve is design something Tuna for the cats, basically, to get them okay, to, uh, well, to move. I'll, I'll take tuna uh, uh, for the cats as my, my analogy now. Yeah. And then came Center Point. For yeah, Center Properties. Center Properties, yeah. Well, me. yeah, there was, there, was a, there was a dark moment in between, but yes, then, <laughs> then I jumped into Centra. <laughs> What's the dark moment? Uh, well, yeah. well, so we're going all the way, we're, we're getting in the gutter. So, uh, look, when, when Real Centric went down, and, and you know, most people to this day and age won't, won't, won't recall it, but you know, those of my friends that were – and still active in the business back then. Um, it, it was the first time I really had to question my own value, my own intellect. Uh, it's when imposter sy- syndrome mm-hmm. rears its head and says, uh, you know, you're not what you think, um, and you might not be even close to what you think. So you know, that company collapsed. Uh, well, you know, we wound it down, and you know, we had 125 employees and offices around the country, wow. and um, we were doing, you know, it was, it was, it was equally thrilling and exciting, and then uh, quickly ending. And it was a time in my life where I started to see the the, the depths of despair and what isolation can feel like, what failure feels like. I uh, spent many. <laughs> I would still you know, drive into my office even though there was no one there because I didn't know what else to do, mm. and I would just sit there and kind of stare at a computer and. Ask you know now I had children I had a wife I had responsibilities and I had nothing and um, it's tough you know uh, and I had to get back on my feet so you, you I think you mentioned earlier you know kind of Ironman as a as a as a kind of you know, and I know you've run marathons now so I, that's actually why I got into endurance sports is um, it was my way out to validate to myself that I have. Yes, I could take on these failings, but it doesn't compromise my you know, determination. And so I said, well, what's, what would be really hard that is only up to me? And uh, Iron Man. Right? And, and it, it, there's no place there's you know, to, to hide in Iron Man. You, mm-hmm. you know, there's no one who's going to swim for you. There's no one who's going to ride your bike. Every pedal stroke is you know, your energy. You know, that end of that bike ride and then getting on, you know, on a – <laughs> lacing up shoes to run a marathon after you know eight hours in the sun on a you know, hot bike ride 
uh, or race, um, it's really freaking hard. And the training is hard. The work is hard. Getting over that's hard. But it's all up to you. It's a very individualistic journey, as mm-hmm. you know. And um, I needed to prove to myself that I, I still can show up. And that was my that was my answer for myself. And what I did at the time said, "I'm going to allow the pity party to run until the day I start that race, and then it's over. And I'm going to go race. I'm going to leave it all out there. And then when I'm over, I'm going to go back home and look for what's next. And that became Centra." So much in that comment too. <laughs> well, it's, There's a, you know, I started running. I've not done an Ironman, but I relate to what you're saying. The, a theme that kept coming up for me in running is runs don't run themselves. Yeah. And it's you and the road and that's it. And it's one foot in front of you. You want to finish the run? It's one foot in front of the other until you finish the run. Right. And the marathon's one thing, but the training for the marathon is really the thing. That's right. And uh, so David Goggins, are you familiar with him? Of course. So yeah. He's got his yeah. second book, and his mom's in his. Uh, you know, she, he and her and her narrate it, and she made a comment about a mother watching her son do to himself what he's doing, and she said, "I, I knew that he had to destroy himself for him to be reborn." That's what came to mind when yeah. we were talking okay. about that. All right. So Centra Properties. So now you're a developer. Yeah. Lo and that, behold, yeah. is that that's that, what Centra did, right? That's right. Yeah, we were developing. Yes. Um, so that you know that was a really you know magical time in this economy and in Las Vegas specifically, kind of early two thousands, and uh, it seemed like you can do no wrong out here. Money was coming in from all directions. Um, you know, I started thinking you know at the time if I just put up a few buildings so I could have passive income, and uh, you know I was going to make a big deal of it. I don't even think it was called Centra in the beginning. It might have been something different, but you know of course uh, you know. On I go, and uh, I can't quite throttle back. <laughs> and I was given an, an amazing gift, and, and that gift came from uh, one of the people I admire probably more than most in my life from in our industry, and that's Doug Roberts. And you know, Doug was kind enough to to mentor and help point me in the direction. You know, I was ambitious to develop, and I thought I knew what I was doing, but of course I did not. And Doug would you know put his arm around me and say, "Let me let me point the way, son." And he had a large project out in North Las Vegas at Craig Road that his company was not going to pursue, even though he believed strongly in it. It just didn't mm-hmm. have the support he needed. And he handed it to me and just basically said, replace my deposit. I'll help you along the way. And uh, we'll co-develop. Just split the, you know, the development fee. Uh, and he sat side by side with me and steered me into the journey and gave me credibility. And I was able to say, you know, I'm partnered with Panatoni when mm-hmm. really you know Doug was just there to um, help and you know, right and and um, that's interesting because you know, I, I don't know if I've ever really shared with him how impactful that was to to what I did but it was Doug and to this day um, still I consider him being one of the best human beings in this business and um, one of the more genuine and certainly among the smartest guys I know in this business yeah and so I didn't my know first, that about yeah, you. yeah, I my didn't first. Know that about you and Doug. Yeah, my first project was eight hundred thousand square feet, and uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it was crazy. Um, and I, you know, so there's one more like you know, kind of business lesson sat in there. So uh, at the time, we were you know putting up this big spec building. Uh, you know, somehow we figured out how to get it financed, and we were you know RC Willie was in the market at the time. They were new to the market, and they were looking for a few hundred thousand feet, which was a very big deal back then. And I was up against Prologis. Who was just down on the street? 
the largest industrial developer on yeah, planet Earth. And some against the, you, yeah. So uh, you know, and and uh, Marv Jensen, as like I still remember all these names like they were yesterday, was you know, the real estate director. He's coming in from Salt Lake to you know come and make some final decisions on this tour, and we did not have a permit yet, but that didn't stop us. So I you know called you know some of the guys involved in the job. Said, can we get some equipment out there? Can we get a water you know tank and Drop a trailer and, and did, did so the like whole, a realtor would stage yeah. a house today. You're staging yeah, I a staged, development I site. I staged a development site, <laughs> and um, but yeah, and, and but and we really thought about it. You know, the, our our numbers and all the things. And when when Marv came in, I I said you know I just turned over my performer, and so I'm just going to walk you through exactly the the, the rate I'm going to quote you. I'm going to tell you how I got to that number, and my hope is when you see how we underwrote your lease, you will you know recognize that we are absolutely trying to be as fair and as aggressive as we can be. But on the other side, um, there's only so much I can do. But I have no secrets. I'm just going to share everything mm-hmm. with you. And so, you know, I don't think Marv was prepared for that type of presentation. But that's what I did. I felt I had no other hope. And I think my <laughs> the rate I quoted him was 31 and a half cents. And um, and uh, so then he finishes the tour and he goes to Prologis, and I think they quoted him 34 cents or something at the time. And uh, he then he picks us. And I still remember that it might have been Dan Doherty who shared with me the comment from from Marv, but. Uh, later, Prologis calls. Say, okay, we'll do, you know, thirty-one cents. I figure like that. That's the starting point. That's like, right, you just yeah. went right to it. Yeah, and and, and uh, you, you just know, got to the point like Irwin taught you. Yeah, and, yeah, I got to the point, and then yeah. and then uh, you know, Marv, you, you just have to give credit to to people who make you know these foundational decisions. And he told Prologis like, if you had that from the beginning, you should have told me, mm-hmm. not now. And he stuck with me, and we you know finished up that building. My my daughter to this day, um, you know. I think it's that we. I made him do an RC Willie dance around our living room, and yeah, you know, this is a big, big moment for yeah. me. I, you know, I had a big tenant. I had a project, and um, you know, the, the, our, our approach of just being clear and candid worked in that situation, and uh, off I went. And then came Perch. Actually, hold on. Before we do that, yeah, I want to share one a story I have from your Century days. Okay, kind of. Is it a good one? It's two thousand five ish. Okay, does that sound about right? I was still doing things then, yeah. So I'm, uh, I got my real estate license in 2004, and like most people back then in Las Vegas, it wasn't to be a professional in real estate. It was if we ever bought or sold anything as a family, I would get a little commission. That mm. was the reason I got my license, and then it became clear that if I wanted to do real estate, it's not a passive thing. It's not a part-time thing. I'd have to jump in with both feet to make it a career. Right. But somewhere along that lines, I remember looking at a magazine – one of the glossy ones out there, a Vegas Inc. or one of these type things, and flipping through, and I see this ad for this the next condo development of Las Vegas. Yeah, five four thousand some odd units, beautiful. If I remember, right, it was like black motif yeah. to the image, and down at the bottom left was George Clooney. Yeah, that's I was right. like, George Clooney's a developer now. Right, that's what I thought. And that was called Las Ramblas. Las Ramblas, yes. Yeah. And I understand you were involved with a lot. That was a Centra development, wasn't it? That was it? our project, yes. Yeah, that yeah, was your so, project. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah you, know, you know, I had uh, you know, George Clooney and uh, and the related group, you know, mm-hmm. specifically out of New York and, Those and are the Florida. Gerbers? That, well, no, related is is oh, the developer, oh, yeah. and then uh, you know Randy Gerber and, and Scott Gerber. Uh, and oddly enough, I'm you know from here, I'm going to go you know meet with Scott, and he's still we're still doing things together, and he's involved with me out at Uncommons and. Um, that that uh, that was a that was a part of a journey that that, that um, was beyond surreal. I mean, I can remember sitting in Related's office. Uh, Brad Pitt had just made an architectural presentation, um, <laughs> and he was filming Jesse James at the time, so he came in with a black. 
beard and was nervous and fumbling <laughs> and just you know, he's he was an aspiring architect or passionate. It's just it was really awkward. Um, but I had George Clooney in there and uh, and Randy and all the, and all these you know super important guys out of related group. And you know, in, at, at that time, it was called Time Warner Center, and mm-hmm. right on Columbus Circle, boardroom of 2,000, 3,000 square feet with floor-to-ceiling glass looking out across Central Park. And um, I always sat somewhere between, what the hell am I doing here? And sometimes I would just take the moment and said, look at me sitting here. Mm-hmm. And I really kind of, you know, but... I, I don't ever think I actually you know, should be in a room with related and George Clooney and contemplating a four billion dollar project, but there I was, and um, uh, it it, uh, it allowed me to, to imagine that anything's possible. And what was even more surreal is when uh, Clooney was out on David Letterman and Jay Leno and holding up renderings of of our project, and uh, he he was generally involved. I mean, he really had some ideas of how he wanted to see this project come together, and um, and then from there, uh, he and Randy did Casa Amigos, so they mm. you know, they kept on going and. Casamigo, they sell for a billion dollars, and um, in the case of Las Ramos, I sold it to Credit Suisse, which is kind of the greater fool theory. They they still believed the market was what mm-hmm. it was. Another business lesson I will tell you. So I had uh, our team at that time. There's probably a hundred condo towers. It was always right. this Manhattanization, so to speak. Of uh, I'm not sure who coined that term. Um, but you know, all these condos are going on. All these pre-sales, all this hype and excitement. And so I had uh, one of our guys. Go out and just spend some time in the kind of after-hour parties you know, with all the people who are the sales agents and all the you know, ladies and men that were responsible for these condo sales, and we wanted to get the truth. So there's one thing: there's the hype mm-hmm. and the public reporting, but what is the, what's the real intelligence? And that was kind of a moment. And someone described it: you know, the difference between intelligence and information. You know, information is knowing you know who Claudia Schiffer is. Intelligence was having her phone number, mm-hmm. right? So you had to get you know a layer lower to really you know, be able to you know, truly have you know a view of what was going on. And uh, lo and behold, by the time we spent some time really in a social setting with the people signing these contracts, we started to learn that the price per square foot was not what was being reported in the papers. That the sales velocity was largely driven by a lot of out of towners that would come in and put deposits on six units with the hope that they would flip it as the property mm-hmm. became and that was common practice in places right. like Miami and uh, you know elsewhere but that's not a real business and so uh, we came back to related and brought them all in a room including you know Clooney and Gerbers and all of our partners and um, basically did a big presentation at the four seasons to those partners and said the emperor has no clothes I mean the the very idea the very fundamentals that we underwrote this four billion dollar project don't stand the test and we have to get out and we did, and we ended up selling for the biggest profit I've ever had in any one project or transaction. Um, it was the biggest windfall I think, and, and it was a, the lesson was most people perceived it as a, a failure. They didn't build it. Mm-hmm. And the reality was uh, the smartest thing we could do was to get out of the way and let someone else who still believed in the fictitious information that was out there. And they bought it, and it happened to be Credit Suisse, who had put among some of the smartest people in the world. Mm-hmm. But um, fundamentals. You have to get up close yeah. and personal to really understand what's Lick going on. Lick the brick. Lick the brick. There That's you are. That's a gymism. That is. And indeed it is. Lick the brick. <laughs> uh, so. so that comes from, uh, I had a listing. You were interested in it, became interested in it after yeah. I groveled and begged, and then someone else told you it was a good idea. So then, then you started looking at it again. Yeah. And you and I are on the phone one day, and you said, no, we got to get out and lick the brick. And I was like, <laughs> it was so graphic. Yeah. 
You thought this guy's and an idiot. So, yeah. ha ha ha. I mean, later yeah. on in the, we're all in the building and we're talking about what your plans were and the market and this and that. And you, in fact, lick the brick and it's on video somewhere. Yeah, but that was at your request, I think, or maybe even I your don't think I requested it. Somebody brought I, that someone up. Someone mentioned it. You yeah. were game for it. Yeah. You did it. Yeah, it's a met- talk is what it I'm is saying. a metaphor. That's all I just want to make sure we're clear. But I, I think though, you know, Haim, there, there's 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 real value there though. I mean, first of all, just the expression "lick the brick," it's sticky. So mm-hmm. you know, you haven't forgotten it, and you you have to. I think one of the things that that kind of gets lost is you know, as you now you have all these great you know. You know, services that will give you all the information you need to you know look at vacancies and rates and on and on and on until you get up close and personal with a building and really understand its nuance mm-hmm. especially now you're just not doing your job or you're not a, a, a true student you're you're taking the easy transaction you're tr- shuffling information around and you're trading on information and I you know, I say I, I say Physically walking the property is a data point. You have to collect that data point. Uh, and I would say you have to, uh, this is going to feel a little squishy, but you have to feel the environment. Mm. You know, walking a neighborhood versus looking at it on Google Earth are two very different experiences. And it's the little things that start to present themselves and show up that inform the big thing. We're now trading a lot of big thing information, and people are like, "Well, here's the rate, here's a tour, here's a deck." Um, it's knowing that you know, the glass line on level three is different than level four, and here's why. And how do I know that? Because I walked the building. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's when you start to be able to provide you know counseling and guidance and and, and um, insight that becomes very valuable. For me, I you know looking at a piece of property, I have to sit with it for a while. I've there's never been a piece of real estate that I haven't parked my car. Usually with a cup of coffee or you know cold drink, and just do nothing. Try and take an hour, two hours, and just sit there quietly and see what shows up. And many, many times I've learned that uh, when we start to trust kind of that non-conscious mm-hmm. instinct after years of experience, uh, it's telling you something. And we get so caught up that we need to have this cognitive awareness. We need to intellectualize and you know, summarize. And I. Uh, for me, I, I still feel that the best things I have done have just come from slowing down and and listening to my inner voice, talking to others, walking a neighborhood, asking what they talk about, you know, what they feel, what they think, what their needs, and then slowly you get somewhere. But we've in this fast-paced world we tend to work with, it's like I got a piece of real estate, let's start drawing it, let's do this, and at least for my process, that doesn't work. So I'm on a run this morning. Because marathon training started oh, three days ago, all right. And I'm listening to the Tim Ferriss podcast, and okay. he's got a neuroscientist on there. Yeah, and they're talking about this very thing. Yeah, that there are things you can feel that we wouldn't really ascribe to, and some of the stuff they're working on is taking data from the stock market and porting it into a band, and you can feel on your skin the movements of the stock market. As an example, so okay. what you talked about as far as sitting there and feeling, and it's squishy. It's actually it might be science yeah. here pretty soon. I mean, well, it is, but maybe not to the mainstream. Okay, I, I, I I'm I'm not sure about the stock market feeling uh, on my arm, but I'm gonna I'm gonna trust that smarter people have said this works. So I want to talk about perch and matter, and then we'll go into the next yeah. section. Okay. All right, tell us about perch. How'd you get into perch? What is perch? Yeah, yeah. So um, perch was another one of these emotional journeys that that uh, you know takes you to the <laughs> highs and the lows. <laughs> So uh, you can imagine me as a you know you know enthusiastic father you know escaped the 
you know, the tragedy that became the great financial crisis. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm safe. I have my girls, my wife, I'm off to California returning, you know, to, to, you know, where, where I started and I'm going to build what I described to my family as a memory making factory. You know, we had, a, we had bought this, you know, great piece of real estate in this home and we were going to reset the whole thing. And everything I was, you know, intending to do was around creating a place for my children and my family to have all these, you know, you know, memorable moments from dining to, you know, sharing a movie together or what have you. I mean, I was dedicating my life mm-hmm. to, you know, these moments. And that's a wonderful journey, you know, through, you know, acquiring a piece of real estate, meeting with your builder, meeting with architects, meeting with interior designers. And it holds up very, very well and is you know, it's led by people who are experts at what they do and can provide real guidance. And eventually they sent me to an appliance store, you know, high-end appliance store that it was called Standards of Excellence. It was um, since it's, I'm not sure they're you know, around anymore, but big regional, 15, 20 stores. I don't know how many they had. And I, you know, I was as enthusiastic and as excited as any man could be to go do this. And now I'm going to go pick out the stuff. I do enjoy cooking. And, and um, you know, I was going to find what is the latest and greatest and the coolest stuff I could buy. There was, I wasn't thinking budget. I wasn't thinking anything. I was just like, I'm going to turnkey this house into something extraordinary. And um, you're met with indifference. And so I went, you know, bouncing into this you know great showroom and it was dark and dimly lit and there was some young person behind the counter who asked me if i have an appointment and i said no but i have plans and a lot of enthusiasm and i can't <laughs> wait to explore with you all and i was like oh, it didn't go well um Get out. and well yeah like, well um there's no one available but yeah. feel free to walk around and and um you know so then you you're, you're forced to kind of look at this stuff stacked on you know in some mm-hmm. cases in boxes and these you know, warehouses, nothing works. You're, you know, counseled by sales associates who don't know how to cook, right? So they're selling you equipment. I mean, and, and you know, I started thinking, well, what other category can you spend hundreds of thousands of dollars in and you don't ever get a chance to test it and it's sold to you by people who don't know how to use it. So if you just put that into yeah. the category of automobiles and thought, okay, so if I went to a car lot today and all the cars were there, and there were some covered in dust, some not, some had, you know, looking disrepair, some were clean. Um, but you couldn't drive them, can't turn them on. Uh, the person selling it to you doesn't actually have a driver's license, and you're relying on them to guide you in making a very expensive long-term decision. That was the luxury appliance business. And I just couldn't get it out of my head that this is a broken industry. So you know, got organized with some people and uh, decided that this industry should look a lot differently. It should be emotional. It should be something that allows us to dream about how we see ourselves living, then interact with the very machines that we're contemplating, and then only then would you have the context to make an informed decision mm-hmm. about what's right for you. Right? You don't know the brands. You don't know what they do. You don't know what the latest and greatest technology is. So you need to get in there and roll up your sleeves and be guided by people. So. Uh, I hired a firm out of the UK by the name of Fitch. Uh, they were doing some of the greatest expression of retail experiences in anywhere in the world. They had just finished McLaren and Tiffany. And how'd uh, you find them? Just, just started looking at who won all the big awards. And uh, you know, so it's interesting. Everyone can relate. So um, I end up with this gentleman, Christian Davies, mm-hmm. who I brought into Southwest Gas. Mm-hmm. Um, and you understand who Christian is. Uh, I was, you know, found that he was doing this great work that I admired. He won a lot of great awards, found a phone number, and on a Saturday morning, took the shot and 
called his office and lo and behold, he was the only one there and he answered. And so I said, Hey, you know, Christian, my name is Jim Stewart. You don't know me from anybody. Uh, and what I may say may be either offensive or interesting. I don't know what the outcome will be, <laughs> but let me tell you something. Have you ever bought, you know, appliances for your house? And he's British you now says that, you know, already the intellectual accent. He goes, you know, of course, you know, mate, you know, yeah, it's, it's a, you know, I said, well, it's a horrible experience. He goes, Oh my God, it's you know, disastrous. And, well, that also applies at the luxury category. And I said, do you know any retail category where you can go in and spend $100,000, dollars $300,000? This is literally the first conversation? First conversation, okay. Christian. And we spent the next hour on the phone. Um, I par- pulled it into a parking lot and just sat there and we just talked. Uh, and what become, became you know, obvious to him and I is everybody has a story mm-hmm. about this. You know, being on this. It was like the worst thing you could do when you're building the most important you know, m- you know, monument to your family and to your life. Uh, yet no one has good experiences with it. And I just felt that was antithetical to how consumer purchasing should take place. So we and built... Like the, and the most intimate thing, which is your home, and, the, no. and it's you said long-term, I kind of chuckled. Like a car, we think about it as long-term, five years at the most. Maybe. You put yeah. a, a bathtub or a shower, like how long is that in there for? Could be generations. Yeah. Right. So And, and then when you, when you really start to look at it that way, now remember, I'm coming off this, you know, this you know, phase of I'm going to build this memory making mm-hmm. factory and there's no place for me to execute that. Mm-hmm. I, and, you know, I, I can't test that that other people believed, you know, and felt the same as I did, but I, this is where I felt. And uh, when, when you then break the category down, it's so senseless because here you are, the most expensive pieces you're going to put into your home that adorn the most important rooms in your home and provide the backdrop to the very memories that you're trying to create in your home. You know, your kitchen, mm-hmm. a, a spa retreat for your bath, uh, you know, your, your children's room, your shower, all these, you know, your outdoor cooking and dining space. These are all, you know, intimate spaces that in many ways inform and create and instigate the memories and experiences you're going to have with the people you care about, right? And the essence of home. And yet the category wasn't presented that way. So I, um, you know, worked under this kind of construct of dream, play, choose that you would, if you're doing this ideally, you would build a front end to a store that allowed your imagination to run wild to see what's possible then you would be interacting with chefs and wellness directors and others and turning things on and playing and cooking and learning. And only then you would be able to walk to the back third of the showroom where now you're in the choose phase where, okay, I understand I want a 48-inch dual fuel range you know, you know, in this approximate mm-hmm. budget. And here are the three category brands that have been vetted by Perch in order to, say, make an informed decision. And uh, that's what we did. And I had uh, you know, the same people who took Restoration Hardware Public, uh, Catterton, out of the East Coast, one of the biggest private equity, consumer-facing private equity firms in the world, got behind us and and uh, put the gas you know, pedal to the floor and said, open across the country as many as you can, as quickly as you can, and let's go public. And we really ran you know, super hard. And uh, it was an amazing journey. I really you know, won all kinds of awards, met all kinds of amazing people. Uh, you know that that we're doing the work behind Apple or the work behind Tesla and building these great mixed use properties, and uh, off we went. So I don't know if I should sh- share this or not, but I'm going to anyway because we talked about just going for it earlier. So you brought in uh, Christian Davies, architect from Boston, to look at this property that you had under contract. I was a listing agent. It's in Spring Mountain. It's in uh, Spring Mountain, which is Las Vegas Chinatown. Uh, he is, as you described him, one of the foremost authorities uh, in architecture as it relates to retail experiences. Yep. And so I'm driving him back from the property to the office, him and maybe two people on his team, I'm guessing, and he talks about how you guys connected. He's telling them, I'm driving, listening. Yeah. And he brought up Perch and the appliance thing, and uh, I guess it's in the play phase because you guys were designing 
the store and part of it is the shower. Yes. And what do people do in the shower? Sometimes yeah. they yeah. have sex and you guys had a conversation like, well, what if they do that in the store? And it's like, well, then they do it in the store. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Christian has a, a bit of a distorted you know, view of the world. I, I, I will say though, we, we, we did. Um, so it's interesting what, what does get, but, but it, again, back to what's sticky. So yeah. when we are, you know, when I, when I go through these thought processes and I'm trying to think, okay, how are we going to present this to the world? How do we make it memorable? And that, that is a, you know, a consistent thread for the type of things I like to work on is what's going to be the, the one thing that people walk away with and can't forget. And so uh, when it came to, to Perch, we built what we called the sanctuary. So we built a, into a building within the building, and all the showers were live. There's live steam rooms and saunas and on and, on and live bathtubs. And we would allow people to make an appointment and close it off. And if you want to go get naked, get naked and go test out this. I mean, think about it. Every morning. There's shower pressure, 100%. That's, you're starting with what comes out. You know, everyone yeah. runs around thinking, oh, I need a rain shower head. I, I don't find anybody that actually you know, enjoys having yeah. a rain shower head. But we all thought you did, but you never got tested. Yeah. Had you tested it, you would say, that doesn't work for me. Mm. Um, so, but, but Christian <laughs> and I became, you know, really, we, we, we were uh, deeply connected on this idea that we're going to build a retail experience that encourages people to get naked. And it became a big thing. And so whenever the media would write about Perch, they would invariably get to this idea, like, here's a store where you can get naked. And that became the thing, right? And so we, we had a lot of fun with it. <laughs> then comes Matter. Yeah, yes. So you're on a bike ride with three, two friends. Yes. You guys decide, hey, let's have another uh, another journey together or a journey together. Yeah, it makes, makes it sound you know, a little bit more, you know, f- uh, uh, more well thought out, but it wasn't clearly that. I, I think I was really the one that needed a place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was looking for my next thing. My youngest daughter had left for college or was on her way to leave to college, and I, you know, concluded that I, I, I had come back to the, the vinyl record. I think I had a couple good songs left in me, and I will um, forever be grateful and, and indebted to Matt and Kevin, my partners. I mean, they are. Two men and fathers and husbands and individuals that um, you know, reflect and live by a code and a set of values and principles that don't show up very often. In fact, I have two partners that you know every day inspire me to be you know, true and better you know, as a as a as a as a human as a person. What a gift! You know, and the very idea that the three of us have complementary skills and I can live in my Dreamland, which ironically is about the only thing I, I, I think I do well, um, and they can tolerate that, and they they give me enough rope to go out and and, and think absurd things, uh, and then have you know, someone of Matt's intellect to, to really synthesize those ideas into you know, markable commercialized projects, and then have Kevin to back that up and say, well, can we actually build what you two you know dummies are thinking about here? Um, Maybe I have it backwards. You had the the model for Perch was dream, play, choose. Yeah. I'm writing Jim is dream. I put Kevin is play and Matt is choose. Yeah. Oh, interesting. I, I don't know you're trying to connect all those dots, but so. I, I did until you started talking I, well, about I, yeah, it. Is, so uh, I think about it more in the th- kind of the three <laughs> C's. So I, I live in the world of, I'm the creative side. Mm-hmm. Matt is capital and Kevin is construction. Okay. It makes it a lot easier if you think about it in just a more elementary way. Same thing, yeah. But but here, here different words. Here. They're they're different. We choose them carefully. I, but here I am again, um, in, in at a point in my life that I never anticipated. Learning every day, I, I, I sit in rooms with with those 
too, and, and, and others on the team, and they speak in a language, they articulate their you know, directions, they, they organize thoughts that are abstract and put them into you know, logic and reason, and I sit back in disbelief that I have the joy of, of, of even being a part of it. It's, um, and then, you know, I think you might have, you know, people constantly, well, you, you know, you don't, I don't take compliments very well, and I don't want people to you know, applaud anything we're doing. Um, about me because it can't be about me and it really makes me very uncomfortable because I have awareness and the awareness is uh, you know it's easy to have an idea lots of people have ideas you know executing those ideas is when it gets hard and so you know to have people behind me uh, that can take these abstract notions that I come up with and actually turn them into something real is uh, it's breathtaking I mean, I, to this day, I still walk around you know, on any of my projects and wonder how did we sketch that around on a napkin only to find that you know, all there's thousands of people out here you know, assembling you know, a back end of a manifold on a particular you know, fire riser and they know what goes where and what connects to what and how it's supposed to function. And I, it, it just it, It's a humbling business when you, you think about ground-up development mm-hmm. and how it all works. Yeah. So I, I've, I'm in the commercial real estate industry, and because of NAOP, I've been around developers, and that's their core business. That's their day-to-day yeah. is being a developer. I'm so fascinated by the developer as a profession for a lot of reasons, but you know, to take a, a piece of dirt and create something out of it and the variations of, of options that are there and the choices to make and uh, the risk, yeah. and I imagine the sleepless nights and then... Indeed. Nights uh, when you get the, the deal and your daughters are dancing in the living room. Yes. It's, uh, yeah. it's awesome. You, you learn very quickly to be comfortable with being uncomfortable, yeah. which you know, has become a bit cliche. But it, you know, look, it, it, the, the world you know, of development for some reason has this kind of romantic you know, notion to it. Maybe just there's <laughs> bigger than life personalities that get involved. Um, but I, I, it's a trade-off, and I and, and I and I have you know a lot of younger people that come and say, "Well, I want to be a developer," and I said, "Well, do you? Do you really? You know why?" And and I think that we get misguided. We, you know, we see the good. You know, Glamour. we see the exactly, and it's it's alluring. And I understand it's you know being it's the siren call to, wow, I could be you know on a stage and I could point to projects and I could say I did this and I and I get that. But what what I think deserves to be to give equal measure in you know as your people are contemplating this you know journey is, but what are you giving up? So we're we're very quick to you know recognize and embrace the reward, but with reward there's an offsetting piece which is and what do you what is the loss? Mm-hmm. And you know I would say the, 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 there is a loss, and the loss for me has been time. Uh, it has been stress. It has been uh, you know constant self-doubt and if anyone believes that i wake up every morning and uh you know full of you know enthusiasm and confidence like look at the genius of our group uh, they would be sorely mistaken i i probably wake up most days afraid and scared and uh questioning did we do we think this through is this right is this is this the moment where it all goes horribly wrong and um is it constant it for me it is yeah yeah um, one of the things you and I talked about once, and you know, the way I'll set this up is when, when you're on a run, you process, I process my thoughts uh, deeply in a variety of ways, and that's part of the fun in, in running. It's a very cerebral activity, almost more than it is physical. 
and I'm on one of these runs and this is how it went. It's like, so I'm going to talk to Jim and I want to ask him like, when does Jim Stewart become Jim Stewart? Kind of what you just talked about. People yeah. hold you up because you've done all these things. And you know, in your center days, you did a project in the Southwest called center point before the Southwest was the Southwest. And yeah. in our industry of commercial real estate, the Southwest in Southern Nevada is Maine and Maine because it connects Summerlin and green Valley and the proximity to the airport and the strip. And you were there a cycle ago. And then you did right. Town Square, and everyone knows Town Square. Right. And that was all you. And it's like, and you know, Jim Stewart's coming back to town, and he's going to start yeah. developing but don't, again. But don't do that. That that that's 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 uh, it's misguided. Well, so like, I imagine you go from being just a normal person in California, where your dad has to tell you right from wrong, and then all of a sudden now you're this now you're Jim Stewart. Yeah, and then that's and so that's, that that was like, yeah. when did Jim Stewart become Jim Stewart? And then I got into the self and self awareness, yeah. and in, I've been lucky enough to or unlucky enough to have a lot of these assessments, personality assessments, okay. ranging from the disc profile to the Holland model to the Myers-Briggs. I've done probably seven or eight variations of these assessments. And one of the things that always stuck out with me, for me, you think about I am who I am, but that's not exactly true. And on one of these assessments, there's like page eight has three graphs. And one of them is your private self, which is your core, which is how you would respond to stress uh, in a if nobody was watching, so to speak. Then there's the public self, which is the mask that you put on for others, or in a way, um, kind of like with your soft serve example, your daughter's made that a thing for you, so now it's a thing for you, even though really in your private self might not be a thing for you. Right. And how many, how many times that shows up in your day-to-day life uh, when you have your mask on for others, and then there's the perceived self, which is how you see yourself, and the yeah. self-talk. And the imposter syndrome. And that's where that stuff starts showing up. Yeah. And so I'm thinking about asking you, when did Jim Stewart become Jim Stewart? And then I'm thinking about this whole category of self-awareness and the different layers of self-awareness. And then I'm preparing this question and I do some research. Okay. So bear with me. This All is right. a, a long and messy way to get into this. I assume we're this. going somewhere. So I'll, I'll, I'm We'll here. go somewhere. We'll okay. go somewhere. Um, from your LinkedIn, so I imagine either you wrote this or somebody wrote it and you approved it. So I'm going into the uh, private or perceived self, or maybe it's the public. Uh, for reasons that I may never fully understand, I've always seen the world differently. Unable to accept status quo. Unwilling to sit on the sidelines. I've had the joy and some misery taking on bold challenges from my earliest moments, memories. From your Matter website, which, again, I can imagine when you're starting up a venture like that and you're really going inside yourself to say, what is this going to be about? And either you're writing this yourself, because I imagine you're a writer, or you're having your PR firm or your consultant. Anything that's going to reflect my voice is my voice. Okay. So Jim became an entrepreneur because working for somebody else just wasn't working. Cursed by seeing all the ways commercial development could be done better and burdened by proving he knew how. He had to follow his vision. So is that you talking about you or did someone? Yeah, that, 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 that's, that's me. Okay. And with then probably by, with some help if I'm to be clear. By chance. Yeah. By chance, ICSE was in Vegas a few weeks ago, which yeah. is big real estate convention, 40,000 people, however many come here. I'm at a dinner and someone, you know, you play the geography. So yeah. someone from Northern California is here and they're, oh, you're, Vegas? you're from Vegas? Oh, do you know Jimmy Stewart? Like you mm-hmm. call him Jimmy? Yeah. yeah, I call him Jimmy. Yeah. And we get to talking about Jim Stewart. And I guess he was in grade school with you. Yes. Yeah. And it, like I asked him, like, has he always been like, uh, like he is? And then I'm trying to like, well, what is he like? But I didn't have to answer. He answered. 
He's always been not defiant, but certainly not okay with the status quo. Now is your your buddy Fernando. Fernando Cuevas. Yeah. yeah. I remember the text you gave me. Yeah. And so you started yeah. talking about, you know, your developer and your Jim Stewart and don't compliment me. And every day you wake up and there's some sense of something could go wrong. Right. But anybody out from the outside would look at you and say, This guy's got it all. He's got uh, exciting yeah. work history. He's done some amazing things. You know, that you started a company like Stuart Mixer that then went on to win 12 years consecutively brokerage company of the year that you went and developed with CenterPoint, all Center Properties, all these things that we enjoy today as a community and the whole George Clooney and Brad Pitt story. Yeah. And now you're back because you still have some more music left in you, I yeah, guess. Right. But even your industrial buildings, which are not exciting, look beautiful. Yeah, thank you. Clearly, you guys put some design thought to the exterior. We do. But yet you still, someone like you still struggles with what do you want to call it? Imposter syndrome or no, questioning not. yourself or, um, I, you know, I think imposter, you know, look, I, I, I don't think it's, if, if I'm new, you know, how I frame it with myself is I, I, I don't think I'm unique in any way in this, in any of this that you're, you're discussing. And look, you know, the, the, my talent is perhaps is that I'm able to look around the corner and see things that aren't as obvious to everybody else. I, you know, I'm not even sure that's an, a talent. It's just the, an attribute of how my mind has been conditioned to work. I probably, you know, I don't know where that comes from. Is that any less redeeming or any less important or any more important than other people who have other skills that I don't have? You know, I, I, I think the, the only distinction between, you know, the skill that I have, potentially have, right? Not, not when we say I do have, you know, that I'm learning every day. Um, and my tolerance to take on pressure and uncertainty in ways that others are not comfortable doing, right? So that it just so happens that if you have those attributes, that can be monetized in a way that gives this perception of success, right? Capital reward and, you know, the trappings of, you know, an American society of I have all the cool stuff, I have all whatever, you know, we're supposed to acquire, we're conditioned to believe we need, um, but in no ways does uh, do I believe that that deserves any more attention. In fact, I'm the I sit in wonder and awe for the people who do the real work in the, in this world, the people that are helping others and and do it selflessly and do it without the uh, the celebration and do it without the the recognition. They do it because it's they're pure and they're generally out to make life easier for others. That's where I would I would much rather be someone that people can visit. You know, the contributions he made were made in silence and were made anonymously and were made uh, in a profound way that created impact and changed directionally how people that are less advantaged were able to live their life. I mean, if if, if I came, if someone ever described that you know that structure and 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 put my name into it, I would take that a hundred times over. You know any building or anything that people can point to, and the, and the reason I get so uncomfortable with this whole you know you know idol you know type concept that, that there's certain somehow what I've done deserves any more credit or uh, uh, you know is is out of reach for others. I think it's a disservice not only to to me because it's not who I am, um, and I, and, and uh, I, I'm as dumb and as goofy and as 
you know, hopefully fun at times and also, you know, frightened and vulnerable and scared. And uh, I'm in love. I want to be loved. I want to be, you know, respected by my children. I, if anything, you know, age has taught me to stop worrying about the, the people beyond a very tight circle. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I've become very comfortable with not worrying about other people, not requiring nor, you know, needing the opinions of others to validate what the life I'm trying to live for me. Um, and I, and I, and I think I am the reason I react to it in a way, and some people you know, think I overreact to, to dismiss those type of accolades because I think it's not fair, not to me. I don't think it's fair to people that deserve or may have their own ambition. I don't ever want others to believe that somehow I have skill or people in my, you know, that have reached, you know, this position, um, have anything that is special. Anyone can so let's let's use marathons. Let's just get something that we can both relate to. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll use Ironman in my case. I have people all the time like, I can't believe I can never do an Ironman. I can never. You probably have people, I can never run a marathon. Mm-hmm. You know that's not true. I could. Say, I know I, that's not true because that's I not was true. that. Per, I'm not just. I can't do it. I have zero. Does like Jared ran a marathon several maybe ten years ago. Yeah. My business partner. I grew up with him. Uh, high school youth group. He and I started running together a little bit with another senior guy at one of the offices we worked at before. The most I ran was a, a 10K. Yeah. He went on to run a marathon. I remember thinking, I, don't, I can't fathom, I cannot mentally understand why anybody would want to do that, why you would want to do that. And then fast forward, I don't know how many years, at least 10, if not more, I started running yeah. really because I got COVID and gyms were closed and I thought... You know, do I've got uh, do I have permanent damage to my lungs or not? So I went on a run, mm-hmm. went on another run, and before I know it, I'm running a marathon. And yeah. I know I know what you're saying like 26.2 miles. I did it. I'm not. Yeah. I'm, I was over 40 at the time yeah. when I started the process. But you started by running one mile. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And and and, and I think that's what I wanted. You know, to to really. Uh, so anyone can demystify. There's no such thing as Jim Stewart. I mean, look, I'm just, uh, it, 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 and, and I mean, you deflected it makes, the attention sufficiently. I don't like it. I don't like it. I, I really, it, it, and I will be, I'm being sincere. It makes me uncomfortable. I, know, I, I can I, sense that. I, I, I um, it's just simply not true. I, there's nothing redeeming. I, I'm on my journey. You're on your journey. You know, everyone's on their own journey and they deserve to be equally celebrated. Mine maybe is more visible and it's more physically expressed in buildings but in no way does it deserve any more attention than people who are doing more important work. And, and, and I think that's where we've, in some ways, kind of lost our way. We, we, we want to, you know, media has, you know, informed us to celebrate these, you know, individuals for, you know, some success or things they've done. And, you know, they, from musicians to, you know, artists and DJ, I don't know what, I mean, every category seems to have people we want to hold out as being, you know, an unattainable position they've mm-hmm. achieved and that's not fair to everyone else who could be the next person you know there's uh, what i'm hopeful of let's use i know we're not in a common ship but let's use any of the projects i leave behind mm-hmm. what i'm hopeful for is that the next generation you know the the, the next group of you know that are coming up behind me to say we're going to take the, the the baton now and uh, we're going to play you know records that are more current and <laughs> we're, we're the next generation that they could see what you know work we've left behind, they can learn from that work and do a better job. That feels right, and I, and I, anything that works against that, and that's why I think this idolization and trying to you mm-hmm. know hold people into this station because they've had you know some good outcomes. 
is not fair to that generation that needs to know they too can do it. They should do it. What what is required though is the doing part. Mm. You have to start. You have to run that first mile. You know, you want to be a developer? Great. Here's some, you know, I could tell people go start here, go learn from this, go learn. And then guess what you have to do? Go buy a piece of dirt. Right? Go meet with an architect. Go plan. Put something in the air. Fail. Do stupid things. Make mistakes. Learn. Study from others. Get a Doug Roberts in your life that yeah. can help you, you know, learn where you know the dead bodies come from. Right. And go and then pick yourself back up and go again and go. It's just we, we, we've be, you know, in some ways we've become a little bit lazy. And, and you know, the, the easy answer is, well, if I can produce online content, I mean, it's it's you know, if I, some piece of research came across my desk, you know, a few weeks back and it was talking about the state of our you know, youth and the education system. And, you know, the number one, do you want to sense what the number one career path is for, for today's kids? I mean, based on the background of the question, I'm going to say influencer. Yeah, exactly. For it is 100. 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, to turn the tile. But, <laughs> right, but that's, you know, what we're yeah. thinking about. You know, I, I, I just want uh, you know, people to... <laughs> that's another great example. I think it's probably easy to, easier to be a developer than to earn a living it as might an be. influencer. It might, it might be. But, but constantly it be putting stuff out there that people will connect with. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I you know, look where where I think the rubber hits the road for me is I don't want um, in any way to be you know cold out from the herd mm-hmm. and said in any way you know the colors of my spots are different than anybody else's. They are they are not. Uh, I live the same way everyone else does. Uh, I have you know learned a lot from you know I imagine you're so well read. I assume you've 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 spent some time studying Stoicism and the teachings of you know Seneca or, or Marcus Aurelius and others and. You know, there's these great philosophers who've kind of laid the groundwork to to help us all understand what you know kind of a complete life starts to look like, mm-hmm. and how do we moderate the temptations that we're given through media and sales and others, and instead focus on you know creating space. And when I you know when I think about creating space, I'm trying to work very hard at learning to live with less, so that I can make room for the things that I truly care about and the things that truly matter. And you know, you start to connect the dots. Well, why do you have a company named Matter? Right? It's, mm-hmm. It serves as a symbol and a constant reminder to me that um, I have to check ambition at the door sometimes because I I do have uh, a level of enthusiasm. Perhaps that's a little bit more, you know off norm, but you know, it, it's not the rewarding part of life. The nice rewarding, way to say it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The rewarding part of life to me is uh, yeah, dinners with friends and mm-hmm. and having. You know, moments of, of, of solitude or meditations and um, just you know, holding hands with my wife. And, and uh, if, you know, I've, if anyone thinks I have some sort of you know, amazingly you know, great you know, sensationalized life, uh, you know, they should visit my wife and I on a Friday night at <laughs> 6.30 when we're, we're probably both in our pajamas and we just cook dinner together. And uh, you know, we're having a, you know, maybe a you know, bottle of wine and not even a great bottle of wine, just, just a glass of wine and um, playing Rummy Cube or watching a show or taking in the, you know, the end of a day and just reflecting on the gift we were given today. And um, that's how I live. I, and there's nothing more. And, but anybody could do that. And I think that's where we've, we've lost. We, we have this, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with the concept of the hedonistic treadmill. No. Right? The, so the hedonistic treadmill is a kind of a construct of how you know, we've been conditioned, you know, mostly through your know, marketing and, and you know, also human behavior, to acquire more, I will be happy when if I just get this and I get this. And you certainly have experience with, you know, 
you know, this romantic idea of the new thing you get when I get mm-hmm. that great car, get this mm-hmm. house, and then, and then, right. you know, I'm going to give myself permission I'll to be happy you know, when, yeah. So that, that, and the hedonistic treadmill is this idea that you, you go acquire those things only to realize it didn't give you what you want. And then you're then conditioned like, oh, you you only got the S class. Had you gotten, you know, the, right? <laughs> and, and so, oh my gosh, I guess I have to work harder and harder. And, 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 you know, the journey needs to start inside. This, and who are you and, and who are the people that you love and care for? And how are you going to be true to, to them and to yourself? You made the, you know, the comment about kind of the profile work you do. I, I actually find one that's, I find more um, insightful is known as Johari Window. So, and then the case. It's going to be the eighth one I do. What's it called? Johari Window. Johari Window. Window. Literally named after a couple psychologists (laughs) or others. You know, one was named Joe and the other was Harry. That's how I I learned it, um, you know, when I was in school. But this is the idea was that, you know, if you just can't take an XY axis, Mm -hmm. axis, um, then the four panes, you know, ideally, you know, they would all be of equal size and and relationship to one another, but that isn't how it works. On the Johari Window, we're the, uh, you're actually four people. Each one of us are four individuals. Mm-hmm. You are the version uh, that other people see you as, right? No matter how much I want to be in your head, you have an impression of me that you think is me, mm-hmm. right? So that's persona number one. There's the persona that I want to put out there. This is who I want you to think of me as. Even as I'm trying to frame, you know, it's a very authentic, genuine conversation. You know, in the background, I'm trying to be careful. Like, don't say anything that makes you look, you know, like a bigger idiot. You know, and that's, so so I'm also controlling. You know what you mm-hmm. you know, so I have a version that I want you to see. Right, so that's person number two. There's my you know my the version of me that I you know I think you called it the um, the mask. Right, you know, the I also know the version of me that is me. Mm-hmm. You know the 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 the, you know, the part of my life I don't share. The part of my life that I think you know my yeah. my fears, my hopes, self. my dreams, my pres- and and then there's you know this kind of unknown exploratory you know true self, and what what you learn through studying Johari is that when people are out of alignment, if the person I'm trying to present to you is not consistent with the person I actually am, it creates tremendous stress. And we pick up on that as a bullshit meter. Mm-hmm. Like I hear what you're saying and the way you're trying to frame something, but for some reason, instinctively, I don't believe you, or I feel like you're manipulating or you're trying to steal my autonomy you know, to do something you want out or get something out of it. The most genuine. When we talked earlier in this conversation about grace, I think one of the things that you know really resonates with me when I'm around people like that that I can just really um, you know take inspiration from. They're living the version of themselves, and the version I see and the version they want you to see are very closely aligned, and I think that uh, that liberates us to you know, stop worrying about the opinions of others. And lets us to be, you know, allows us to be comfortable to to share a version of us that is real, that is authentic. And when you start to have those type of conversations and connections with other people, it becomes material. And you know, my world now is to you know, really make sure there's a, and it's not every day. Uh, it's hard, and it's not always true. But I work very hard to make sure that the person I'm presenting is the person who I am. That's why I think I react to this, you know, this idea that, you know, when did Jim Stewart become Jim Stewart? There no there aren't two different people. I've always been the same person. I've always been, you know, have, you know, hopes and dreams and aspirations. And you know, I'm always, you know, I have fears. I have dark moments. I've had my own mental health struggles. I have all the trappings that have you know, would make people question their own journey. And believe, unfortunately, that somehow they're not adequate. 
And that's why I think I work so hard to say uh, that's not true. You, know, um, you are adequate. You are who you are. And uh, celebrate your truth and live the life you, you want to live while maintaining a certain level of integrity and values and alignment with you know, who, you know, what you hold to be you know, kind of your moral compass. Those are non-negotiables. But beyond that, I, I just wish we could all get off this, you know, this platform that somehow you know, we have an expectation of others and we're forcing our expectations on them. And society is forcing expectations. Your parents are forcing expectations. Maybe your religion is forcing expectations. For you to become someone, that's not you. And it's a grave injustice to the journey we're trying to take through life because it's very temporary and it'll be over before we know it. And that's the you know another big lesson that came out of this you know exploratory phase of my life to, to understand what guidance would you give to somebody uh, in the, the the younger version of yourself. And consistently, one of the big you know qualifiers there is to live a life that's true to yourself, not the life that others expect of you. And I think you know for any of your listeners or you or me or anyone else, if we start to Ask how much of our day is dedicated towards presenting a version of us to line up with what others want to see. It's exhausting and it's mentally deteriorating, and it moves you further and further away from fulfillment, from purpose, from humility and vulnerability and empathy and compassion and all the kind of soft tissue words that I've come to you know, hold out as endearing qualities of any person I know. I don't even know what your question was. We probably went down a, a bit this of a rabbit how, hole. This is how takeaways yeah. works. Okay. This All is right. exactly how. When you were talking about the Jahari window and the XY axis. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so it reminded me, so you came back to become a developer with Matter and somebody that you and I both know sent an email out to his network, Alan Sklar. Oh, okay. And yeah. it said something to the effect of, my friend Jim Stewart sent your properties, did all this stuff. And now he's back in Las Vegas, and in there was, as you could tell, I am in some descriptor like a, you would expect from an attorney, something like <laughs> I'm an unapologetically, unabashedly fan of just something like that. Okay, no. You were probably in town a year or two, and I sent you an email. I actually read your website. Maybe it was right after you guys mm. sent your website. I read through the whole thing. I sent you an email, something to the effect of, um, Alan Sklar raves about you. My father-in-law does too. On one of your next visits, I'd love to grab coffee. I've got no agenda. And you wrote back saying, great. And we went to Samba Latte. I was expecting, you know, one of these introductory getting to know you type meetings that would last anywhere from a half hour to an hour because you were giving me your time and I had nothing to offer back. I was just saying, I'd like to get to know you. And it was a 90-minute conversation. And in that, you also drew a graph. I don't know if you remember. It was... Mm. The river of change is what you talked about. Oh, you must you remember mean, this. You would mean the transition river. The transition river. Yeah, I, yes, I, okay. I remember it as the river of change. Yeah. The transition river. And it was also, it started with a quadrant and we we're talking mm-hmm. about brokerage because you have experience with that with Stuart Mixer. And here I am and part of my journey and I've got a brokerage and you, uh, I've seen this quadrant before where you've got your high culture, high producer person on one side and then your low culture, low producer and the other variants of that. And what you do with each of these, you know, high culture, high producer, get out of the way, anything they need. Great. Uh, Someone who's high culture, but a low producer, not so easy. What do you do? You try to coach them up on being a a producer. Uh, Someone who's low culture, high producer, you said public hanging. That's right. The person that's making you the most money, but is eroding your culture. You kick them out of your office. You call a standing huddle. 
You you dramatize it. You know that person that makes makes us all this money but makes everyone's life miserable? They're out. We just got rid of them. It's a public right. hanging. So that was one of the takeaways that mm. you shared with us okay. that Jared and I still talk about pretty frequently. Another thing that came to mind is the way takeaways works, this whole thing of takeaways and why did I do this and why am I doing this? And it's something about me that actually a, an agent in our market named Jen Levine held, held up the mirror once. We were working at NAI together. I was the managing director. She was an agent. She went to a summit or something and came back. And before I could ask her, she said, I already know what you're going to ask. What are the takeaways? And I thought of three and I'm going to share them with you. And she, she did me an enormous favor. You know, 360 um, feedback, people telling you how they perceive you is helpful and that was one of those moments. I didn't ask her to do it. It was a gift. And I was like, you're right. I always look for, I do always look for the takeaways. And I'm sitting at a nap breakfast and it's the, it's the uh, government affairs update. They talk, they talk about what happened at the legislator. And it's like, it couldn't be more boring to me. It's yeah. not my thing. And even then I will sit there and we'll say, okay, what can I learn from this experience? The moderator's charismatic. I like his style. This person is just talking over my head. So if I'm ever that per there's a takeaway there there's something there and a couple years ago maybe maybe a year ago uh you hosted the sior another real estate association lunch at uncommons one of the office buildings was still in shell condition okay so you brought in tables you brought in catering you had a speaker and a, and a microphone and the whole point of this was so we could tour the project it's a hard hat tour we had reflective vests on yeah and after the show that you created for everybody and you had the poet spoken word poem yeah poem was yeah. read the uncommons poem right um which we could do another takeaway about <laughs> but before we all went on this tour you said something you said this is all good and fun and we're excited about this project and excited for you to see it do not forget this is a live construction site and there are people driving heavy equipment out there and when you're crossing the streets, don't assume that they see you. And in fact, do not cross the street until you have made eye contact with the driver. And so here I am in this moment of my life thinking, great, I'm at a real estate project tour thing. And yeah. you say this thing. And then I'm in my running journey now. Fast forward. Okay. And I'm running all over around my house, the streets of Summerlin and other parts of Las Vegas on longer runs. And how often this takeaway shows up in application. And if I'm running here and yeah, a car, I know, I understand. a car is going to make a right turn. They're looking to their left to see oncoming traffic and how often they just go out without looking back to their right. Right. And how that takeaway has served me many a times. I'll, I'll, I will either go around or I will not go into the street until I literally will see them and wave and they wave back. Right. That's how takeaways works. And it's, uh, you asked, did you, you don't even know the question. No, I don't know. I'm rambling well, I just, But you know, my, my agenda was just make sure that yeah. nobody gets hurt on our job site. So uh, I'm, I'm glad it's, it's, it's uh, you know, found its way into a lot of other parts of your life already. Yeah, well, there was the Jahari window. There was yeah. the, I'm going to call it the river of change forever. Transition river. Transition yeah. river. Yeah. And, uh, you know, look look the driver in the eye. But that's yeah. all, all okay. a segue for us so to, given to go three. into. You've given me many. I mean, okay. that's, that's just a couple. <laughs> um, to go into uncommons. Okay. And I want to talk about this project on Commons, which on paper, it's a mixed-use project on 40 acres that has half a million square feet of office, about 90,000 square feet of 
curated retail. Mm-hmm. I can't call it retail because it's curated That's retail. Right. It's more than just retail. At 800 apartment units. Right. But it's not just that. So what started as a you know a single piece and and um, you know when when I first looked at it, I wasn't interested in just a, you know a single piece but single piece being what two and a half acres no nah, it was a little bigger than maybe ten you know, okay. enough to, to get started but you know the the thesis around uncommons was uh, pretty obvious I think to me um, which was you know Hughes Center excuse me was on its way to becoming um, locationally obsolete so yeah. Flamingo in Paradise in Southern Nevada this is a million plus square feet of what used to be the the place to be for business, yeah, central yes, for business sure. district. Yeah, right. And now it's it is because I would never want to drive there if I don't have to. Right, and 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 we knew that to be true. You know, I used to office there as well, and and uh, you know, so you just have to ask yourself, kind of, you know, well, why are they still there? And it doesn't take a lot to figure that out. That well, there's no viable alternative. So, mm-hmm. uh, unlike when we did Central Point across the street, you know, the prestige and cachet of you know, a Morgan Stanley or a Deloitte and others, you know, they require a certain um, quality of a project, you know, that feels consistent with their corporate identity. Mm-hmm. And um, the reason I've concluded that everyone was still in Hughes Center is that there was not a viable option. And so that, that kind of gave me the chance to um, learn lessons that uh, I took from a collective of, you know, my own experiences from being a retail Entrepreneur and and what it meant to understand human experience design and how you can connect uh, an emotional journey for people in a very you know systematic way, but also a genuine way. Uh, you know the the lessons learned from my daughters on what it means to you know, work for a place with purpose, work for a place that uh, allows you to have engagement with your friends and is exciting and is a, you know f- um, you know a place you want to show up versus have to show up to. And so it was all these little things where, you know, voices were invading my head. And um, once once my brother turned me on to real estate, I realized, okay, this is, if we could somehow amass enough real estate here to get some scale, this is where I can express all these, you know, voices I can't quiet down mm. and um, and try and do something about it. And so 10 acres became 40. That's right. And, uh, and it was not an easy, and, and a lot of people, um, you know, Joe Kennedy among them, you know, Joe sold me that first piece and you know, kind of navigating this thing through the entitlement and the acquisition of all the adjacent parcels and getting this all together, taking through you know the county and going through uh, a rather complex urban village and high-impact project and on and on and on. Um, it took a lot of time, and uh, I needed people to be patient with me. And there were you know there were many, and and Joe Kennedy was among them that said, "I'm I believe in what you're trying to do, uh, and I'm going to be patient." I, you know, of course, we understand the transaction, so we paid along mm-hmm. the way. But, uh, and, and and I think you know, in some ways, I am that that's where again my discomfort comes when people want to put like a person in this case individualized around me. It's simply just not how the world works. I mean, mm-hmm. It took a lot, you know, a lot of people, and to this day, it takes a lot of people their their own willingness to kind of buy in. It takes people like you know, you know Neville, one of the greater you know men you and I could ever know in our life, to say I believe too, and I'm gonna I'm gonna help. And that's where I think it's so – where I think I – when people talk about me, I think it takes away from the honor you know, to the people who really you know, are on this journey. And it can't be mm-hmm. a person. It's, it's a collective. And so long way to say, yeah, acquired uh, 40 acres, <laughs> assembled it because I knew so, that's the corner. So on that, on that uh, visit when we came for SIOR, Kelly was telling us a story about a little parcel of yeah. land that was owned yeah. by someone that was living in a – Nursing facility in yeah, California. Yeah, she didn't know she owned it. 
and she didn't know she owned it. Right. And it was like, well, if you don't get that piece, we had nowhere to go. You have no project, and you're already like, we are going. Deep. I mean, the horse is out of the barn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, you said to her, "You wonder why I stay, you know, up late at night and wake up scared <laughs> in the morning." That you know, these are the stories. And so uh, Kelly had to fly to visit this woman and explain to her, "You own this, and we want to buy it from you, and we're going to pay you." F- I mean, what's the? Yeah. So, um, and her name escapes me now, and but she was you know, probably you know into her nineties. And so what happened is there was a piece of real estate that was acquired by the Department of Transportation when they were putting in the freeway. And uh, so it was owned by NDOT, technically on the deed. But when they go to sell those remnant pieces back, there's a reversionary right that goes back to the person who originally owned it and sold it to them. And so they all, they have the option <laughs> to buy back the land at the price that you know the, the municipality, in this case NDOT, the you know, jurisdiction was NDOT or the agency was NDOT, um, whatever they paid her for, she had the right to buy it back at that same price. And now this had been 20 years ago or you know, however long ago. So you can imagine her distrust. She's a senior citizen, and here comes these you know, people she doesn't know calling to say, we'd like to buy your land. And she was consistently saying, I don't own any land. Well, mm-hmm. you kind of do. No, I really don't. And it took Kelly, who, let me look, the, the fact that I've gone this far without talking about Kelly you know, Lawson um, is almost an embarrassment because uh, – you know, she, she has been uh, my right hand and, 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 and made, you know, so many things in my life work correctly. Um, uh, by far and away, the most valuable person I've ever been surrounded by. And uh, to this day, um, yeah, I, I couldn't live without her and do anything professionally. So She's got that remarkable quality. The best way I can describe it is the Dale Carnegie gene, like Neville has it, my father-in-law. Mm. Kelly has it, too. I think I've met maybe five people that immediately just have that and make you feel yeah. totally comfortable, totally trustworthy. But And I've spent some time with her and, and what she does, and you talked about this entitlement thing, and you sort of gloss over it, but when you hear it from Kelly and the process that it takes and yeah. what she does, right? it's just... It's all, it's inspiring. It, it's another yeah. level, yeah, yeah. It is, yeah. So um, you know, we convinced you know, Kelly, I should say, you know, finally you know, shared enough with this lady to say, oh, okay, and we had to have a letter from the county and others. We tried to you know, show that this is why you actually have a right and um, you don't need to. And she's like, I have no interest in buying the property. We said, we don't think you want to, but we'll buy it and we'll pay you mm-hmm. what it's appraised for in exchange for you giving us the right to acquire it. And we need her kind of reversionary rights to come back to us. But yeah, literally, <laughs> Kelly flew out. Uh, I think they brought a nothing but cake with them, and we flew our notary with her, and they sat in her apartment and uh, or the senior you know, facility, and they sat there with her for all afternoon and told stories. And eventually, you know, as Kelly can do, um, reached a point of comfort to say, "Here's the clarity of what you know we have and what you have," and um, she affected the transaction. And, and, and if uh, not for that, no one comments. That. And and I think even in that case, we you know the the. There was no escrow. I mean, we literally handed like a cashier's check and yeah. said, "Here you go, take it to the bank. You're good to wow. go." And uh, we took the reversionary rights. But at the, the and, and you know, it's interesting. How you know, project like in Commons, there's I have a hundred stories like that, a hundred moments probably where it could have just come off its rails, and uh, the least of which is something like COVID mm-hmm. and another you know, thing. But yes, uh, so we all right. We, so you've got you've got like forty acres. A yeah. blank canvas, which right. in Las Vegas, it's not easy to acquire. Right. And you didn't just get 40 acres. You have it where I th- I believe Durango and 215 is Maine and Maine for Southern Nevada. Right. Ikea believes so also, and they've got smart people doing all sorts of statistical research. And they decided when they're coming to Vegas, they're across the highway from you. You're on the south side with right. Uncommons. 
And now you get to decide, wow, what are we going to put on this campus? And you could have done a lot of things, but you chose this project. Right. And it's not just like I talked about office buildings, retail, and, and multifamily. There's all sorts of work. I want you to talk about the work that you guys did to decide what you were going to express on this on this parcel. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, we could do an entire episode on on just that, uh, and, I'll, and I'll, but I'll try and synthesize it into a way that um, the, the best of those attributes and qualities you know, are, are part of this conversation. So, uh, you know, first things first. You know, for me is I I, I want to make sure I'm surrounded by you know the Christian Davies of the world, the the the, the true intellects and creative thinkers that. Um, once you tear, you know, let them loose, you know, magic seems to happen. And we you know, went after uh, a very specific individual by the name of Duncan Patterson out of uh, L.A. Gensler's office. He leads the global practice. And the reason I went after Duncan is he's designed projects that I have admired for a lot. You know, Rick Crusoe's work for people that are in Southern California. Uh, he just finished the Village of Palisades, which was a, you know, a remarkable, remarkable project. He was doing Fifth and Broadway in Nashville for another group. Uh, uh, and, and and just the type of projects that I think we when we travel and we see we're like, wow, why doesn't that exist where where you know we mm-hmm. live or we operate? So I've you know, Duncan was the first time I've been interviewed by the architect. So the Duncan flew out and said, "There's no way I'm drawing anything in Vegas." And so I said, "Well, just entertain me. Come on out. Let me tour you around and let's get to know each other. Lessons learned mm-hmm. from previous mentors in my life. And uh, let's just start with seeing if we like each other." And I said, "You know, I said, the way to view this, Duncan, is." First comes essence, then comes form. You're, like, oh, you're dropping this Buddhist crap on me or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I said, so, so let's just let's just spend some time. <laughs> so uh, he flew out and and we spent uh, you know a, a, a you know, first half of a day together and drove him to the normal you know, projects you would think I would take him to. And at the end, he's you know we had three projects left. He said, I don't need to see any more. Uh, you know this town needs me, and so he said. You know, he was, uh, and he was aghast at you know what we. He's like, you know, he literally was like, well, what the hell is it with the uh, you know the people in Las Vegas? You you think you live in the Mediterranean? You know, you live in the damn desert. Why isn't anyone honoring you know the the, the native environment and, and what makes you know mm-hmm. the Mojave so beautiful? You're building as if you live in Tuscany. What's wrong with you people? And as if he said, you'll get me, but you have to commit to me that we're going to talk about. Materiality and a reflection of time and place and he sustainability. Said yes, he did. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And I said, you know, Duncan, you're speaking my language, and I want to learn from you, and I will be your, you know, your thought partner all the way through, and I'll allow you to do your best work, uh, and your best work will be your ver- vision of best work lined up with our vision of a commercial enterprise that is economically viable, mm-hmm. and you know, f- to liberate a creative like Duncan Patterson, um, you know, really is a uh, you know, good place to start. And then we had a, a, a counterpart to him, a gentleman, gentleman by the name of Daryl Fulbright, who leads the office practice for Gensler. So we kind of married up two disciplines. We knew we were at a workplace strategy first, but the placemaking would come from the, the mixed-use nature and the work that Duncan Patterson does. And then you start, and then you dream, and then you push and shove and debate and argue. And I, you know, I kind of work off of you know, kind of my you know guideposts are you know empathy, play, meaning, purpose, symphony, story, right? And you know, so we I put all these words up on you know kind of in our you know early charrette sessions and dropped them all around and said, you know, this is what we're after, you know, a place that you know speaks this language and design, and uh, it was magical. I mean, I, that that is the single most enjoyable part of any project for me is the charrette and the ideation and what's the charrette. Uh, it, it's just you know when you start you know scratching around with a bunch of uh, you know tissue paper and 
drawing with pens and not uh, you know not ink you know not well, not, not you know cads and you 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 push you shove you draw massing and you organize and you literally will crumple shit up and say this is nonsense and let's start over and let's tear out a new sheet and let's draw again and what about this and how does this orientate over here so you, your essence you're just trying to throw all the ingredients onto the you know into the kitchen mm-hmm. and then pretend that you're cooking until you find something that actually tastes good and so in this case you know you you just you're organizing buildings and relationships between buildings you're asking you know what does the experience look like what does the experience feel like and which is our next point of departure so look like sense of place Gensler among the world's best what does it feel like sense of belonging not their forte mm-hmm. and um, you know for all the research and 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 industry insight they provide around workplace strategy and research when you've Go one layer deeper and say, well, how do we actually create belonging? How do we create connection? How do we, you know, create community? This is a, a new language that they weren't. Um, while they, you know, could pay attention to it, it wasn't really their discipline. They're they're designers, and so I, I knew I had a problem. Um, problem is not the right word. I, I, I think I saw that there was a there was an opportunity to learn much in the same way I did with Perch, where if you just reorganize. The category and instead speak to our human desires rather than you know an economic desire. Mm-hmm. To me, you know, I quickly differentiated this. This shouldn't be a place that people pay rent to to go to an office. This should be a place where people feel privileged to show up every day because they're surrounded by you know like minded. They are inspired by the environment. They are in, you know they're given these you know moments of serendipity or you know, or restoration or connection that. In some ways, we had an active role in instigating, and um, that kind of got me pretty excited. And so, you know, I went out and uh, regrouped some of the people I used with Perch around human-centered design or human experience design, and said, "Have you ever taken these, you know, this modality and this design thinking into a mixed-use project?" And of course, the answer was no. But um, everyone got excited, like, well, "Let's see what that, <laughs> how that shows up, and what it looks like." And so, you're pioneering. I As you're so. going along, I think so. Uh, exploring is probably a better way okay. to look at it, and uh, just trying to see what what sticks and what what is um, what do we have permission to do, which is probably a strange way to explain design thinking. But um, you know, the way I kind of express that is, you know, if you're you know queued up at an Apple store for the next release of the iPhone 16 or you know what have you, you know, standing in line and the Apple employees come out and hand you a bottle of water, you know, they have permission to do that. It's consistent with you know, the construct of I'm at an Apple store, I'm in a line, and they gave me a bottle of water. If they come out and hand you, you know, a perfectly braised lamb chop, you're going to say, this, this, these don't belong. Mm-hmm. You know, but you eat, and uh, you might even like lamb chops. I mean, so there's certain things that, you know, fit within the organizational these silos. Like, yeah, this is like sy- symbols and signals that we have throughout our life. Like if you mm. go to a grocery store, there's all sorts of signals and symbols that shortcut your decision-making. The lamb chop example is kind of like like if I'm standing out uh, outside, waiting in line, and a lamb chop shows up. It's outside <laughs> of the patterns of acceptable. Yeah, right. I got okay. I got. So what we use that in the fr- in the frame of yeah. permission sets. Yeah. Okay. What what what, what do what is within the you know the expectations of mm. someone showing up you know to their apartment or to meet friends or to show up to work and and what are the margins of that start to look like and that's where we could play, but if. You know, if someone showed up and it became whimsical, like I had a lot of people trying to push art and other things on us that um, you know belong in Area 15, not at a corporate campus. 
Yeah, I don't have permission to to go that far. Gotcha. So it's just so a very careful the, the eye on are. how do we innovate um, with a very you know select eye on where do we cross the divide to being whimsical and not relevant. And so what are some of the things that are there now after this process? Like, for example, you get to name streets, and you could have right. named them whatever you want, but you guys decided to name them after, is it four or five? There's five different uh, civic leaders. Five different Nevada civic leaders. Right, unrecognized, often overlooked, particularly people of you know color or minorities or gender that simply for you know their place in time, um, they were doing the important work, but someone that shone brighter, was more public, perhaps you know, undeservedly or not, got all the recognition. So back to my earlier comment, it's the unsung heroes, mm-hmm. the people that do the selfless work for the right reasons. Um, what, a, what a great opportunity we were given. So we partnered with the uh, UNLV Department of History and did some research work with them to understand who these individuals might be and how they might um, be contacted. And then we cut it down to a small group that said, this is, these are the people, these are the, the brilliant contributors to this community that we want to honor. And so somebody not part of the design process or not at the presentation ceremony that you did for the five people or their families right. that wouldn't know that. What other discoveries are at Uncommons that somebody might not know about that would be, once they know about it, they say, yeah, yeah. that's cool. Because hmm. that is cool. That is cool. Yeah, well, I, I, I think it's, in, in some ways, it's, it's, it's what we should all be doing is a little more intention. Uh, you know, I've had enough projects where we've, you know, flipped through a catalog and picked, you know, art because it was in a budget. And I thought, okay, that's great. On to the next. So what you'll, you'll start to sh- see showing up now is a certain level amount of street art, which um, to me is part of the, the aesthetic and texture of a, you know, of a real urban kind of landscape. But it's just not enough to put up art. We try and make sure that the messaging for that piece, right when it shows up in your, you know, kind of journey through Uncommons, is uh, relevant to where you are and what you might be doing, kind of activity-based uh, inspiration. So, uh, if you go into like one of our main parking garage, you know, sexually, you know, it's named PS One. Mm-hmm. Uh, but right <laughs> when you pull into that garage, we have this, you know, wonderful, you know, work done by a local artist, and then and it says you belong, and that there's a lot of intention put behind that, and we actually design these moments around the campus to say, you know, what is the, what, what, what do we want people to feel when they first come in? So when you first pull into our main parking garage, PS1, you're going to see a couple of things that, you know, that we're speaking to the unconscious mind kind of to, to set a level of safety and inspiration. So very first thing on the left is a security office that's built with glass. And I, I forced it to be made out of glass so that as you're driving in, uh, you can see security officers and monitors and to help you know we take your safety um, a, 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 with high importance. And we have applied and made it front and center. Safety. Got to keep you safe. Um, might not cue uh, you know, consciously, but non-conscious, your brain saying, okay, uh, mm-hmm. this place is safe. And then you make the right into the garage. And the very first thing you see this giant wall mural that says you belong. So you're safe. And we welcome you here, regardless of who you are, your backgrounds, you know where you came from, you know your loves and loss, whatever might have, you know be influencing your life. Um, we're glad you're here. You know, and you'll see that you know throughout you know, the, the entire property. And now we're you know taking it to the next level with, with little quips uh, that will show up in the right spot to kind of inspire you on the moment of that day. If you're walking back to your apartment 
And it'll be a little, con- you know, a, a great quote from Maya Angelou or others. It's, 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 you know, how was this day? You know, the home is, you know, the restorative space and just to cue you like, oh, yeah, I'm walking home. And when you're walking into an office building, there's going to be moments of kind of career inspiration and, you know, finding you know, truth in the journey you're on through your own professional career. So a lot of little details. And and, uh, and then there's things that you don't really see, little Easter eggs. There's there's mm-hmm. certain uh, you know, Satan's that show up on the gra- on the concrete only when it rains. You know, so we we were trying to take people out of this. You know, everything is so easy. I can get whatever I want off my phone today, and I can control kind of my day. I can summon a car. I could have food brought to here while we're working. You can't make these quips show up unless it rains, right? So we wanted to give this you know the expression of surprise and delight, where you know, we could do the unexpected. And now uh, starting next, uh, I think start, they start next week, they'll be installing. So when you mentioned the poem, that was done by Miss A.V. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she wrote 12 haikus of what it means to be uncommon. And it's, you know, soundly and foundationally based around, uh, you know, our dis- difference, differences among each other and the commonality that gives us to you know, do great things, the importance of community, the importance of making an impact in Las Vegas. Um, so all those are going to show up now throughout the quad area, the courtyard area. But they're not obvious. You know, some of them might be you know discovered under a table. One one might be very obvious. And we wanted to make this kind of you know Easter egg journey of sorts to say, did you do you know where all twelve are? And they'll show up in surprising ways. Um, one might show up only if it rains. But the secret will be, can you tell me where all twelve are? And we're going to design some sort of kind of reward system that if if you can go into Amelie into our community mm-hmm. office, say I have a picture. I know where all twelve are. They look like this, and they say this. And you have the poem now situated. That uh, we've done something to kind of recognize that effort, and again, is that for everybody? Of, of course not. I mean, is that for even the majority? Of course not. Can we think creatively? Can we, you know, let people know that our intention was to, you know, create these moments that are not only unexpected, but I hopefully telegraph to visitors at Uncommons that we didn't just do the easy part. You know, we try to do the part that you know gives you a connection or inspiration to a to a property. That creates belonging, and these are kind of again back to the lessons we took out of the human experience design firm and, and the work um, that they they led us through. And so you're sitting here and you're spending a lot of time with me. So first of all, thank you for that. Uh, yeah. The the more significance is that you're sitting here and you're probably going to leave here going back to Uncommons because tonight you're opening the Sundry, which is the food hall. Correct. Is that the curated retail or is that part of the curated? Everything everything is curated. Every, so, what are some of the I things have, that are there that are cool? Also, I, well, first of all, this is, when we say, when we say curated, it's a, it's, a, it's a you know it's a buzzy word that I don't think you know, but we use it. So, um, but what does it mean? And so, let, let's use you know, you know nail salons. We've forever wanted a nail. I, I, I personally have walked into probably fifteen nail salons in this town, um, and 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 went and explored to try and say, is is this the you know the type of entrepreneur we want to have at Uncommons? And so that that's what curated means to us mm-hmm. is. Every single space has been singularly discussed, organized, and vetted out to say who belongs here and what it is and how do we go find them. The, so let's use salt and straw. So I don't know if you know anything about salt and straw. You're you know, kind of a West Coast. Salt and straw is the bane of my existence. They have uh, you know, an amazing reputation uh, with my daughters. And I was forced to, you know, throughout their childhood to go stand in line, you know, all summer long for 30 minutes because mm-hmm. they had to have salt and straw. I knew we needed to have salt and straw at Uncommons. 
they were not in the market. The, I found the owner. Her name's Kim Malik. She lives in Portland. She is the one who originally came up with this artisanal hand-scooped ice cream and these unique flavors and you know, done in a way that is art. And I called Kim. I said, I need you, you know, to be part of this. And all those lessons that we've previously discussed mm-hmm. about patience and making sure you have value. Um, and I just told her, she said, well, I'm not in that market. I said, I understand that. But what I do want you to know is when you're ready, this is the place definitively where you'll want to show up first. And then for the next three years, three <laughs> years, I sent her pictures of me and my daughters in line at her, at her you know, different venues. And so I just want you to know I'm still thinking about you and I'm ready when you are over and over, always polite, always complimentary, always sincere. And eventually she said, I want to come out and look at, at Vegas. And uh, it took me four years for an ice cream store that's less than a thousand square feet, but it's the right one. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what, what, what I want. If anybody picks up anything at Uncommons as it starts to go is to, um, celebrate these amazing entrepreneurs and people like the speakeasy candle. Uh, you know, Alicia, the first I told, you know, when Frank Volk brought in this idea of a speakeasy candle, I said, well, tell me more. Has she done this before? No. Uh, okay, so <laughs> so she, you want me to give up this prime piece of real estate? And he goes, and, and, and to Frank's credit, I said, you just have to meet her. And I've met Alicia, and I was overwhelmed with this intelligent, passionate, female-led business where she just said, here's what I want to do, and here's why it's important. And she has no credit. You know, she's not experienced. You know, I think 99% of the peers, you know, the Brookfields, the GDPs and others, would say there's no possible way. And um, our approach was, no, we're going to give everyone a chance who shares our values, who can, you know, thinks about community, thinks about connection. Um, and we've been with, you know, our hits and misses. It's it's super hard. And all these tenants I have tremendous empathy for because they, you know, they signed on to that. COVID comes along, yeah. right? Hugely disruptive. Then, uh, you know, supply chain hits. Then inflation hits. Then, then, then. And, uh, you know, the, I, I've spent more time with my arm around their shoulders and holding people up and saying, it's going to be okay. We're going to help. We're going to get through this together. Um, sometimes it's hard. It's okay. I'm with you. Let's go. And I, I find it immensely rewarding to me to then see them, you know, blossom into these, you know, great businesses. But some don't make it, too. We have, you know, one or two, you know, local coffee shops that, you know, when costs started running up, they're like, ah, tapped out. Mm-hmm. Know? So, Okay. That's a risk I took, and then you know, doesn't mean it's the wrong path. No, we, we keep going. But back to the sundry. So let me tell you uh, what what culinary magic looks like. So when I first started with the Ooh. sundry, that's a, how about that culinary um, magic? Culinary, I just made that up just as I was going in for this one. So um, when when we started construction, we we you know, always knew we had designed, of course, you know, in with a food hall, um, not knowing anything other than I like food, and I've been to a lot of food halls. So we designed this place and. Um, uh, lo and behold, Frank gets a call. Frank Volk, uh, you know, uh, gets a call from uh, the Mina Group, saying, "Hey, we see that you've started this project. Uh, we'd like to talk to you about it. We have a couple concepts." Mina Group is Michael Mina that has had the restaurant at Bellagio and I'm yeah, so other places. Yeah, so Michael Mina, uh, Michelin starred forty five restaurants around the world. You know, probably one of the. Oh, more- he's got credit. Yeah, he's yeah. Well, <laughs> he's he has credibility, uh, and and so um, you know. I fly out thinking, okay, we're going to meet with the MENA group and uh, ask Frank, so, well, you know, how many are we expecting? And, da, da, da. and he goes, I don't know. It could be a few, it could be many. I said, well, now, does that include the chef? 
probably not, not at this level. And okay, well, let's 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 start by you know making introductions and see if we get a relationship. With Essence folks. first. Essence first. Yeah, that's <laughs> your quick study. Uh, and lo and behold, only one person shows up, and it's Michael Mina. And how about that? Yeah, how about that? And I, and I you know, one of my very first, you know, kind of, you know, true white tablecloth chef-driven experiences with it was at Aqua, which is his Michelin-starred mm-hmm. restaurant in San Francisco. So you know, to me, like, wait, so the founder of Aqua, you know, this restaurant operator that is, you know, travels the globe, that's who I'm now going to spend some time. So I was, uh, I, I was a bit, uh, you know, awestruck with you know just having Michael Mina there. But then you know it goes on, and, and I think uh, the chef and I spent probably two hours together, just sitting in a room, you know, just like this, across from one another, talking about life. Uh, he had relocated out of Las Vegas, out of San Francisco, took his team and moved. He's living in Southern Highlands, and um, you know, obviously had a long history in Las Vegas on the Strip. But now that he was here, he's saying, you know, I, I don't understand why the local community doesn't have access to the same type of expression of food and experience and you know, fit and finish. That all the tourists get to enjoy, because I've long wanted to do something for the in the suburbs, but there's never been a property that is consistent with the experience on the plate uh, that is expressed on the buildings outside. So I said, "This is it," because I've been following it, and now here we are. And we really had this you know deep deep dive about what we can do, uh, and and what is the you know what is the culinary scene that exists just below. And we've talked about this at Spring Mountain. I mean, all these mm-hmm. you know, great chefs are exiting. You know, the, the Las Vegas Boulevard, where you're just serving a, an, an ungrateful tourist, you know, on an expense account over and over, and it's high velocity, it's high pressure, high speed. But it's not why most of these chefs got into the business. They got in the business because they're hospitality driven. They want the connection with people. And and Michael championed it and said, "I'm going to, you know, I'm going to open my Rolodex and I'm going to bring in the people that should express their talent in a way that uh, doesn't show up in the suburbs." So now the, the sundry. Uh, which officially we have now announced, uh, or I should say, you know, Mina has announced, will open June twelfth uh, to the public. And inside that building is a a culinary miracle. There are the most passionate chefs. There's you know this. I spent the last two days with a chef by the name of Shotari Kamayo. Uh, he is from Berkeley, California, where you know, before that he spent you know grew up and trained in Tokyo. In the Bay Area, it, show is how you know is his name. Uh, you know, whenever you can have like a three letter name, you're pretty badass. You've mm-hmm. you've, you've, you've crossed the chasm of relevance. <laughs> so, show is one of the most talented and passionate, you know, purveyors of all things you know Japanese, principally seafood and sushi and amakase and all the things that kind of make his talent show. That guy is now down the street, and he's at the food hall with Mizunara, and he is breathtakingly beautiful person with a talent that I've never seen before. A mere 50 feet away from him is Chef Ray Garcia out of Los Angeles with BS Taqueria, who is one of the most excitable, you know, in culinary speakers to, you know, what we I would call Angelino Mexican style food. There's a little bit of a twist, you know, to the Mexican influence inside of uh, Los Angeles versus maybe, you know, Mexico. And, you know, he's handed me a couple of these, you know, hand-built wood-fired tacos where they make their own sort of, and each bite, like, it is impossible <laughs> that I can have on one, in my left hand, you know, a nori hand roll from show, and on my right hand, I can have, you know, a braised pork, wood-fired, hand-built, you know, the taco from Ray Garcia, and those two can exist in my hand at the exact same time, and 
there's just nothing like this. And then outside that, there's another 14 venues from Dabaji to, you know, Cowbird and uh, a bar oysterette. And I mean, if we are correct, this will become the central feature to everyone's weekend on how they choose where they're going to go eat and where they're going to go meet friends. And, you know, when you start to look at the collection of restaurants in Amari and uh, we don't even talk about Antico Vanillo, and that's Joe Bastianich, one of the most famous sandwich restaurants in the world. Uh, and their first outpost, they have one outpost in the United States, and it's New York. The second one is Uncommons. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are remarkable, you know, kind of culinary moments for for this community. And it's all going to exist in this, you know, incredibly romantic, uh, well-designed, well-conceived, incredibly safe, well-lit, you know, aesthetic that should inspire for evenings. So when you think about when I say curation and I talk about the food and I talk about sundry, in many ways, I just did what I was trying to do for my children to create a memory-making factory with a home. Mm. I like to believe, this is now just coming to me top of my head for having this conversation, that uncommons for generations will become the memory-making you know, factory for the community. And uh, and I say that you know with a, with a great dose of humility, by the way, because it's the talent that's there, not my talent. It's the the Minas and the shows and the Ray Garcias and the Joe Bastianiches and their work that you know I could sit back and imagine and take great pride, frankly, from the work the team did out there, knowing I could promise you in the next over the course of the next five years, you're going to have dozens, dozens of moments where you're going to maybe have a little bit of shortness of breath. And just say, this is this is my neighborhood. This is my community. I'm with others, and they're enjoying themselves. We're in this incredibly romantic setting that feels like it belongs here. And that's an important part because I think even the work I did at, at Town Square, where the architecture speaks to a you know, melange of design periods and looks and feel. Uh, I have nothing against downtown Sumlin, but you know that's a it's a mall. You know, with it, you know, in some, you know, of steel and glass and you know, is that community? Uh, you know, I don't. That's for other people to assess. But what I do think, you know, shows up in inside of Uncommons, and particularly in the quad, which is a nod towards you know how we used to live in college. I call it a campus because, mm-hmm. in many ways, I think of when I think of Uncommons, it's not a mixed use project; it's a campus. And I play, you know, when I think about that kind of time in my life, it was it's when I was most inspired. I would be intellectually curious. I'd have great speakers that would come and entertain. I had great social connection. I was able to be a part of subgroups that had shared interests, be it you know a, a running club or a fraternity or the finance department or others. So that informative journey in our life, to me, and I think many others, was probably the most expressive time in my life and the most growth in my life. Why can't the workplace be that? Why can't the place we gather with our friends and family feel collegial, feel connected with others in a way that says, we're all in this together? Now, we don't have a mascot, you know, we don't have a run and rev or any of these things, but we could say this is our community and look at what we have and give everybody, you know, a certain sense of pride to say, you know, to, to drag their friends and family from out of market and say, you think you're all that just because you live in Orange County? Let me show you what, what it can look like in Las Vegas. And that to me is what I hope people take away from the work that's being done out there by all these amazing entrepreneurs and, you know, food makers and, uh, and, and, you know, visionary designers and and the people behind the multifamily, all these other things. What I hope uh, at the end is that people walk away and said, we're very, very proud that this project, its ethos around 
shared experiences, around inclusion, around connection and belonging, uh, in some way, it makes a small dent at changing what I believe is the current trajectory around loneliness, around toxicity, around divisiveness, you know, around mental health issues. Uh, I find it, you know, immensely overwhelming that um, statistically today, 17% of high school teenage girls, 17%, nearly one in five, have either attempted or have seriously contemplated suicide. You know, if that doesn't weigh on all of us and to say, what are we going to do about that? And it's not a trend that just is inching up. It's up 70% over the last 10 years. So we're on a horrible plane here where we're you know, spending time looking at our screens and not looking at one another. And here you and I are for two plus hours here, and we've been eye to eye, nose to nose, a mere two and a half, three feet away from each other, and it's empowering. Right? It's connection. And that's what we're after is can we create a place where we have an active role in instigating those moments of connection, allowing people who otherwise might feel not accepted to feel accepted. You know, the very name and the nature around our branding and the work I did on Uncommons was to, much in the same way, you know, matter telegraphs to me, you know, make sure that you know, I'm making time and space for the things that are truly important. Uncommons is a nod to tell the community the very fact that we're all different from one another, the very fact that we're all on our own journey is what uniquely ties us all together. It's what should bind us in a way to say, I'm going to celebrate you, the real you, the authentic you. And you don't have to hide here. You could show up and express yourself for whatever your values are, whatever your belief, whatever your orientation, whatever your color, whatever is who you are, you belong. I think we just wrap it up right there. I don't have <laughs> um, you know, but part of what I was going to ask you is, and you already answered it, so I'll just ask it uh, rhetorically. You're a developer. That's your core business as it relates to Uncommons. And there's a development process that you follow. And everything you did around Uncommons doesn't fully align with a development process. It's more, it more mirrors a creative process, which you, you really kind of laid out. But really, a developer develops a project for a return a return on investment, a return on whatever the measurement is, but it's really right. a return. And you start peeling back all these things that you did and the journey that you went on. And at the end of the day, it's like someone can easily ask, just put up the buildings, get them leased, yeah. do your thing and move on. What, why, why do all this? But you you really answered all that yeah. and, and, as far and, as the why. Yeah, and, and again, it's my journey yeah. and, and my team's journey. And this is what we think is well you know, feels good. My journey. It's yeah. my project. I'm yeah. do what I want to do. Well, uh, if I want a poet. I get a poet. <laughs> yeah, well, but, and that's right. And I, that's I, I don't think we have to apologize for that. It, it's and it doesn't. Um, it doesn't have to apply to everybody. I I, I don't live under this you know, preconception that everyone's going to show up to uncommons and fall in love. I expect that there's mm-hmm. going to be detractors. People that show up and say this is nonsense, and I, I just want to go to a Shake Shack, and that's fine. You know, that's their journey. Um, I, I believe there's enough people that are like minded that will. You know, connect and resonate with the message and the ethos and um, you know the, the the work we're doing around community and trying to be at the forefront of you know the conversations of the community and things like the assembly that we're you know putting up. You know, there's no reason to build a five thousand square foot conference center in an office project, but we did. Why did we? Because we don't want the voice to to dampen. We want to mm-hmm. make sure that we have a a platform where we can invite in people to continue the conversation long after we're we're out of the picture. I, I'm nothing more than the steward of this property, 
uh, you know, soon enough when these restaurants and everything else kind of opens up, I'm handing it over, and it belongs to the community. After that, we are just the the uh, you know the gatekeeper to make sure yeah. it doesn't get screwed up. Well, it's tremendous. Is there any final takeaway you'd like to share and leave all of us with? Could be about uncommons or anything else. No, no. Look, I I, um, I think I've I've said you know way, way too much, and by now there's probably only like two people left listening because this would have been exhausting. I you know I I, I um, so I'll give you another just my last kind of truth of when I lived in Las Vegas and what I think other people might experience and 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 what we should do about. It. So uh, you know, living out here for 20 years, and and you know, all three of my daughters were born here, and. Um, you know, I always felt a certain insecurity about saying I lived in Las Vegas. And I, I think it you know, really originates from my fear of outside opinions and like, oh, you're raising your children in Vegas. And, you know, I think we all mm-hmm. kind of experience that to some extent. And, uh, you know, that's that's real. And, and, I, and I don't think, you know, we should just hide and like, oh, no, you know, we're you – know, yeah, no, it's it's tough to convince the world that that Las Vegas is a community built on family values because the reputationally you're fighting the you know, LVCVA who wants to say what happens here. So the messaging people have is that this is sin city mm-hmm. and um, it it supports debauchery and behavior that is you know unbecoming to you know how well which is nonsense because the very people that are coming here performing and behaving that way are from those communities. It's not the locals. <laughs> uh, but I find that ironic. But 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 here's the thing. Yeah, I think Las that. Vegas is in this amazing kind of nexus and, and moment where we're finally seeing you know, a level of credibility and kind of shaking off this honky-tonk you know, expression of what Las Vegas is to what Las Vegas can become. And this is our moment. And I think... You know, for people that are you know wondering, do we have to accept status quo? My answer is don't. For the people that are wondering what they can do, I'd say just go do it. Do something. Let's start advancing the interest of this community and dealing with the hard issues like education and others and infrastructure and you know trying to you know, make it make a difference. This town needs leadership. It needs that next generation. I'm getting too tired. I'm probably already too old. So I, you know, I, I would say anybody that that's trying to do good work. Um, consider us to be a resource. I'll share any of our information, any of the work we've done, any of the research we've done, and um, let's all kind of get in the boat together and see what this town can look like in 10 years because the fundamentals are beyond what any community I'm familiar with in perhaps the world can point to, from NBA to Major League Baseball to the Sphere to Formula One to this to that. I mean, these are remarkable economic stimulators coming into this town that will diversify and create an awareness that this town has never enjoyed. Let's do something about it, and let's do something about it together. Well said. I'm from here, I'm born here, and never had a problem saying I live in Las Vegas because that's all I've ever known. But one of the observations I have about this city is a guy like Jim Stewart could come here because it's the only place he'll get accepted, or a uh, second gen- first-generation English as a second language, yeah. mildly dyslexic, barely got into I didn't get into UNLV, actually. Mm. I was not accepted, so I went to CCSN for a bit, and then I got transferred there, and I'm doing okay. I'm doing all right, trying to make an impact just like you. But that's available to anybody. I think that Las Vegas puts that on offer for anybody. So I agree with you. Great great point to end with. I know that this has been a big ask of you to be here. you got a lot of important work to do. So thank you, Jim. Uh, My appreciation. I'm, I'm grateful for the work you're doing. This is good. Thank you for listening. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Takeaways podcast is about sharing and paying it forward. 
If you like this show, please make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. It really goes a long way. And if you really like the show, please share takeaways with a friend. Thank you and tune in next time.